This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Marine veteran and police chief Tom Sinan. Now, what is so important about this conversation is, as you know, on this podcast, I have addressed mental health and addiction on numerous occasions, as I feel it is central to most of us. But one of the most challenging communities to address this situation, especially the prohibition laws, is obviously the law enforcement community, because they have been charged with enforcing these rules for so many years. So Tom is truly forging a path on a more progressive and proactive approach to mental health and addiction. We discuss a host of topics, from the epidemic that is crippling his state of Ohio, dealing with his own trauma, the incredible coalition that was formed in his county, changing the mindset in law enforcement, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Tom Sinan. Enjoy. Well, Tom, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield. Literally, we had a brief instagram conversation about two days ago and here we are yeah no i appreciate you inviting me thanks for having me so where on planet earth are we finding you today i'm in newtown ohio which is about 11 miles east of downtown cincinnati ohio very small town in the suburbs brilliant well my wife is actually from north canton so not right next to you but near cleveland i think it is yeah not too far at least it's in the state yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) So I would love to start at the very beginning. You've got a fascinating kind of journey that you found yourself through. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit, excuse me, a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so uh, I was I grew up in a town called Milford and it's maybe about 10 miles from here, five or 10 miles from Newtown. So really close, but I didn't know where Newtown was growing up, had never heard of it. Um, so I grew up in Milford, uh, small family mother and father and a brother. And that was really about it. Um, you know, kind of, uh, I thought a normal childhood, I think looking back, probably not normal. Um, uh, my mother eventually ended up having some issues with mental health and, and alcohol. Uh, she and I have discussed that a couple of times. We're not necessarily super close. So the family dynamic is not really close. I had actually not seen my brother for over a decade and went actually out to Utah to see him. So kind of a a different family dynamic, which I think had an impact on me as far as being very empathetic growing up. Plus, I was really small as a kid, uh, very small. I I graduated high school at 120 pounds, wrestled my senior year at 112 pounds. Um, So I had kind of an interesting childhood. 
kind of a leader in the community, but also got beat up at the same time, which I don't know how that works out, how you can be a leader and beat up at the same time. But that's kind of the way it worked out. Um, was an average student in school, wrestled in high school, um, a lot of individual stuff, uh, a lot of stuff on my own, which I think really helped me when it came to learning resilience and learning the struggle and then seeing things from other people's perspective. So, yeah, I look back and it is kind of an interesting childhood, but when you're in it, I don't think you really know the difference. Um, but we definitely had some interesting aspects of childhood, some things that happened that were pretty traumatic to the family, um, had an impact on my father, on my mother, uh, not only their marriage, but the entire family. Um, some false accusations were made, which really had an impact on my family. So, yeah, I, I would say looking back, it wasn't the easiest of childhoods. So that's a conversation and it ended up being it kind of made educating me to the point where I would spend more time in early life in these interviews because for the longest time, you know, we assume, okay, well, the, the mental health things that we see in the first responder professions is because of what we see. It's because of what we have to do. And then you start becoming a little less naive and you realize, okay, what happened to us before we ever put a uniform on is actually a huge part of, of, of a human being story. So now you have this lens as a kind of older, wiser police chief when you look back, were there any kind of generational elements that contributed to even your mother's own struggles? You know, I, I've been reluctant to talk about it because there really wasn't a conscious tie-in to what my childhood was like and what I'm doing for a living. Look, there was nothing about addiction that I thought about when I became a cop. I wanted to be a cop to save the world. I was naive. I was optimistic. It wasn't because of my family experience that I wanted to be a cop. So I've been kind of reluctant to talk about it because the two aren't necessarily connected. I would say consciously aren't connected, but subconsciously there probably is something. And I'm on my own journey um, dealing with uh, looking into my own life and why do I make decisions? So I talk to uh, people, life coaches, therapists, I do all kinds of stuff to get into the mental aspect of what, why do I make the decisions I make and why am I doing the things I do? And I think probably on a subconscious level, there was something going on there that kind of not only drove me to law enforcement or first responder, um, more of, I think it's, you can connect with certain people. I think if you're introspective and you've gone through your own struggles, I think if there's anything conscious, it was that. It was being a small kid, growing up struggling. I understood the struggle that other people went through. And I think that's where I kind of gained my empathy was, I know what it was like to be picked on. I know what it was like to be beat up. I know what it was like to have people put you on a pedestal and tear you down. I know what it was like to grow up in a family where, where there was these struggles, where you couldn't connect, where you felt alone, where there was mental health and depression. And probably as a kid, you're dealing with your own stuff that's not diagnosed. You wouldn't know, um, nor would you be able to identify it. But you do identify certain things if you're able to come through this with some introspection. And that is resilience. That is discipline. It is the ability to have empathy for others. So I think that's probably what subconsciously drove me to this career. Looking back, especially with all the stuff with addiction, it's kind of, I'll call it ironic because again, it wasn't a conscious decision that this was my path and this is where I ended up and this is where I've become known to advocate for changing how we do things. And I will say that I do use my personal experience more that now 
that I'm aware of it um, and I can connect it to other people. I do use that a little bit more, especially when it, it comes to a choice of should I push or not push, should I advocate or not advocate. Again, I don't go out and necessarily tell my personal story because there are so many stories of so many others that I think are much more relevant and more important. But I think it does drive me to speak out um, and to tell the stories of others so that we can have these conversations. And part of that empathy is being able to be vulnerable enough to humanize these issues. And I think that's what I've been able to do. If anything, my childhood experience in recognizing what I've gone through, I think it's that vulnerability, being able to come on to something like this and being vulnerable enough to open up. Look, these, as you know, these aren't comfortable conversations to have, especially from our field. But to your point, we all have these experiences. And in some way, they're driving us to these industries, to these uh, professions to where we're trying to help other people. And I think a lot of people who have struggled growing up are drawn to this because that hero complex, which may be not consciously aware of it, but subconsciously aware that we want to make a difference in others. And it's funny because I've had some people that I have a lot of respect for that have guided me throughout my life and my career. And here I was thinking that I wanted to make a difference in the world, change the world. I've had this incredible opportunity to do that. But then I kind of question, was I really trying to change the world or was it really about me and changing myself and becoming more whole? Maybe you can do both at the same time, work on your brokenness and become more whole and complete. And in that journey, maybe you find ways to make the world more whole and complete. And maybe that's my fascination with Batman and Batman's brokenness. And that's what he's doing the entire time. He's broken from this family tragedy. He's trying to make the world better. And there's always this, this dynamic. Is he trying to make the world better or is he trying to heal himself? So maybe that's what we're doing as first responders in our healing of ourselves. We're trying to heal others. Well, and you look at Batman's origin story, it's riddled with childhood trauma. Childhood trauma, aces. I mean, he has some of the, he watches his parents get murdered. And then, you know, and, and I, I relate to him also because he struggles with what is right and wrong, what's moral and immoral. Um, and then there's a lot of discussion whether the Joker is kind of a shadow self of, if you get into the psychology of Batman, is the Joker the shadow self of Batman? And being able to become introspective like that, think about your own journey, how your past has influenced your decisions and your actions. I think if you're able to be introspective like that, you can have empathy for other people. And I think to, to me, empathy is one of the superpowers when it comes to a first responder. If you can be empathetic towards others, you can really find solutions, make a big difference. And empathy is not condoning another's behavior. It's just understanding that someone else is going through something and that's what's driving their behavior. But feelings drive decisions. And a lot of times we feel things. And when you talk about trauma, that trauma is in the body. And even if we go back to Batman, you you look a lot of his tension and anxiety and his own probably depression that he deals with. And he struggles with that. And that's what's inside his body. But it drives his decisions and drives him to go out at night, wear this costume, have all these weird uh, gadgets, and then try to fight crime on his own in his own way with his own set of rules that kind of bend the rules of society. So it is kind of fascinating how to relate towards Batman, my own experiences, being uh, introspective, and then going on my own journey internally of what did my childhood, how did it impact me, and how can I use that to make a difference in others and then in the world? 
Well, I don't think there's been a better film to show empathy towards someone who ultimately is a sociopath than the Joker film they made recently. Did you see that one? Yes, that was fantastic. And probably one of the better ones, the Dark Knights and the Last Batman were some of the better ones. And, you know, it's fascinating because I do talk a lot about Batman. It's, he's, uh, he's the center of many of my speeches I give and talking about the brokenness and his struggle with right and wrong. And it really and that's where addiction. That's what really changed me with addiction. And when we get into that story, I'll talk about I had this vision of what was right and wrong. And an entire family dies and shatters that vision um, and its own uh, impact it had on me personally. So and that's what Batman's dealing with is what is really right? What is really wrong? And what are the morals? And really what he's fighting when it comes to the Joker is the Joker has his own issues. He's doing things his own way. And I think in a way, Batman can understand that and he can see it. Um, but then he struggles with, wait a minute, what you're doing is wrong. It may not be immoral. But then is Batman maybe doing the moral thing, but is he doing the right thing? And I think that's what a lot of human humanity is. It's complex. There's a gray area. It's not just black and white. There are a lot of issues that people deal with and a lot of experiences they deal with. And when we're first responders, you get thrust into these critical incidents, these emergencies, these, these incidents of emergency for this person. And you're a problem solver and you're trying to solve their problems. And yet, who's working on our own problems and our own issues? And do we push those aside? Um, and if we can work within those and figure out what we're doing, what I think you would then have to question what is right, what is wrong, what's moral and what's immoral. And then I think you got to question not necessarily why you do the job, but can you do the job in a more empathetic way that finds more solutions other than the black and white? It's a crime or it's not a crime. And I think that's the shift in addiction and mental health we're seeing, not only mental health within first responders, but mental health as a society and understanding mental health does drive behaviors. Um, and not that it maybe is an excuse, but it is a reason. And if we work on those reasons, we can find more solutions. So really, it's kind of fascinating having this conversation because it's making me think a lot of what am I doing this journey for? Is it for me to be ultimately healed? Or is it for the world to ultimately be healed? And maybe I'm just like any other first responder and thinking that way. And maybe if we find our own journey, we then help others become whole and complete. Absolutely. Well, it's something that I found even within myself, you know, you and I've certainly through the people that have been on the show, one of the biggest aha moments is not when they themselves are struggling. It's when they found whatever healing element worked for them, whether it's equine therapy or psilocybin, you know, you know whatever the, the thing was or the, or the combination of the things. And then they come out the other side. Now they are a little bit more resilient and they tell their story. And then these people all come out the shadows and say, hey, I've been hurting too, but I've been too scared to say, whether it's stigma, whether it's the addiction side, so there's literally the legality. Um, and so you would never be able to have that you couldn't yourself be that vulnerable person who could then storytell unless you'd been through the crucible first. The irony is after you've come out, as you said, you take the your own journey, then you apply it, whether it's what we do on the call or whether it's in the station itself. So only after you've been through the gates of fire can you truly be of, of, of service to many of the people that you then work with or work for. That's spot on. And I'm thinking about when I was a kid, uh, the struggles I went through 
and there's others who struggled and and I think you see the brokenness of the world and I think you can go down a couple paths you can go down and see the brokenness of the world and say well everyone else is broken so I'll stay broken or you can say well the world's broken how can I fix that brokenness and maybe you're not consciously thinking about repairing your own brokenness but maybe if I make the world better and I see less brokenness then maybe I become more whole and complete in this world that has become more whole and complete. I, I don't think I was at that conscious level as a kid, but I did see other people's struggles. And I think that allowed me to, maybe it was good and bad. Maybe as a kid going through my own issues and my own family issues and what they were dealing with. And then my own struggles as a small kid and being bullied and picked on and beat up and all the other stuff that small kids have I think I could have went and said, well, I'm going to be bitter towards others. And you see that in the world. You see it with active shooters. You see it with people committing violence against others. You see it in personal relationships where someone has had their own struggles and they don't know how to interact, whether in a loving relationship or friendship or interpersonally with other people, coworkers. And all they're really doing is projecting what they've experienced as a kid. Or you can go as a kid and say, I need to make changes, and I'm going to go down a different path where I'm going to try to fix things. And really, that was my decision to go into the Marine Corps, even though I was so small, was I knew I needed some way to change the world, and I couldn't do it on my own. But I felt the Marine Corps was at that stepping path towards that. If you can find other avenues to work towards more of the discipline and positive, recognizing what you went through in those experiences, then to your point, you can use that to teach other people and help other people. But, you know, in this industry, the vulnerability, whether it's a policing, firefighters, EMS, whatever it may be, as a first responder, that vulnerability is something extremely difficult to, to achieve because you have peer pressure, you have, um, you're seen as weak. And it's been one of my biggest things I've pushed back on is the most vulnerable, the strongest, because they're not hiding anything. They're putting it all out there. And to your point, what I learned is the second I became vulnerable and I spoke up about an issue, how that Im issue impacted me, I got hundreds of emails, letters, phone calls from people saying, let me tell you my story of addiction. Let me tell you my loved one's story. And to your point, when one person opens up, it opens up the floodgates and allows other people to be vulnerable. And it is in that vulnerability you find solutions, if not just a connection but you can find answers to help alleviate some of that pain. And you can only know it through that vulnerability, but you have to be vulnerable yourself, which is challenging. It is. It is. Well, speaking of, of, of strength, I was a small boy myself. I, I, I don't know why I wasn't really bullied. I think it was partly the, the school I was in. It was, it was not very affluent, but I wouldn't say it was very cruel. I mean, for some reason, the dynamic was, was kind of kind place, um, a kind of, you know, sense of community there. But martial arts was the thing I used to really improve my own self-confidence, my own self-esteem. So talk to me about your journey into wrestling and what impact that had on that that rather younger, you know, meek child to who you became through that practice. Yeah. Well, I wanted to play football, but uh, I was 98 pounds, 110 pounds, 112. I mean, I was really small. The first hit I got me knocked me pretty much clean. So I was pretty much out of football. So wrestling seemed like something that I could stay within my realm. Uh, I could have my weight class and, and something I could excel at. And what I really liked about wrestling was the discipline of it. 
here, here's a sport that's one-on-one. There's no one else you can blame but yourself. You have to either improve or not improve. Um, and it really comes up to, it is a team sport in a way because they're keeping score as a team. So you understand that your role as an individual can impact others. So I really like that aspect of wrestling. But the coaches had a tremendous impact on me. And I think from probably whether it's a, a one-on-one sport, whether it would be gymnastics or wrestling, whatever it may be, I think those coaches have a tendency to spend a lot of time with people because you are working at one-on-one sport and are having to come to you, each individual within each weight class and trying to work with that individual. So I got a lot of coaching from them. And I think the coaching wasn't just about wrestling, it was about life and teaching me about the hard work, about discipline. You had to stick to a diet. There was a lot of things you had to do outside the gym that you had to do at home that if you didn't do them, you weren't going to succeed in the wrestling arena. And I was by no means the best wrestler in the world. I made it to regionals. I did place in a couple tournaments, um, but I also got knocked unconscious a few times and took some knocks. I broke my nose. Um, so it was definitely a rough sport. But I think that discipline was what really hit home for me. And that ability to be a small kid and achieve something, I think really hit home. It showed me that I could do something that I felt was outside my power. And maybe there was something that I thought, like you talked about martial arts. I I think that's why I got into weightlifting later in life, but maybe as a way wrestling was a kind of a way to defend myself and, and help me defend, fend off others and kind of give me a little bit of status, which I had not had necessarily I think when you're a small kid, you learn survival skills and try to fit in with different groups so that you don't get beat up. So I was friends with pretty much everybody. And I think that wrestling allowed me to open up a lot more doors than it would have been if I was just an isolated kid. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. That was one thing I wasn't you know, a popular kid. It wasn't like I had a tight knit group and that was, you know, we were ride or die, but I was friends with everyone too. So I think it was that same chameleon survival technique. Chameleon's a perfect way to because if you can blend in with others, you're not getting picked on. Plus, you feel like you're part of the crowd. Um, you have your own issues. Everyone has their own issues, whether you're tall or you're short, whether you're big or small. Everyone has their own, especially growing up as a kid. You're trying to figure out who you are and your identity. Where do you fit into the world, which is challenging in itself. But I think when you play sports and you do something like wrestling, this individual sport, it allowed me to kind of stand, feel that I was standing out a little bit more and that I could interact with the different groups. Um, I wasn't just this pushover kid. It was uh, someone who had some structure and discipline. And I think it was, like I said, it was ingraining something internally and probably subconscious on how important that discipline and structure would be, not only there then, but later in my life and continue throughout my life. So one key factor when it comes to positively addressing so many issues, whether it's mental health, whereas it's diversity in the first responder professions is mentorship. You know, it's very easy to sit on your on your phone and start tweeting about, you know, how bad the world is. But unless you're walking out in your own home and then you're out outside your own front door and making a difference in the community, I think you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. I see the mentorship program that's here in Ocala. They have a phenomenal fire one where they remove the barrier to entry. Kids of all backgrounds, you know, ethnicities, etc. As long as they can make it to this fire station three times a week, they will be given all the tools for a profession. Um, you know, you hear all these stories where one mentor made a huge difference. With 
you know, as you mentioned, some of the challenges you had in your family dynamic, how important were those wrestling coaches as far as mentorship and shaping your future? Oh my gosh. It, it was extremely important. I was just thinking one of my teachers, that was a wrestling coach. His name was Mr. Black and he was one of our wrestling coaches, but he also worked uh, as a teacher. He did some stuff like, I remember taking a class automotive repair, small engine repair. It was a lawnmower. Look, man, I have I can tell stories. I can be, I'm a great cop. I can do all that stuff, but I cannot fix anything. I am terrible to fix it. I took the engine apart, could not put it back together. And I, I got a C in that class, but it was because Mr. Black, he would spend time with me and it wasn't even about putting the engine together. It was about his wisdom, about what he learned in life and what he was teaching me and how he was mentoring me about how to be a good person, what I should be doing, giving back to others. Um, how I should be structured and disciplined. And no matter what was going on in my life, he was that person that you could rely on. I mean, he was the father figure of school. And he was that person that really, he, he, what he really taught me was that although society says that you must have A, B, C, D, E in order to be who you are, here I was, I couldn't even put an engine back together, sat in a box the entire class. He could care less about that. He goes, you have other strengths and here's your strengths and here's how you need to work on them. I mean, he really taught me about life and what a great lesson because that probably had more impact on me than I don't work on engines now. Now, if I was going to be a mechanic, maybe that wouldn't have been so good. But since I wasn't that, he taught me a lot about life. And I think that his influence had an influence on the way I do the job and the way I am as a human being and probably helped develop a little bit more of that empathy and realize that people aren't necessarily always good at a certain thing, but one particular thing that we in society say you have to be good at, but they have other strengths. And I don't think we point out those other strengths often in society. We say you either fit into this or this is the image. And if you're not that, then all of a sudden we discard you. And I think I see that a lot with addiction and mental health is we look at people and say, and judge them and criticize them and say, well, you can't do this. So you must be this lower person. And I think what Mr. Black did when I was sitting in his classrooms and just talking about life was he taught me that doesn't define who you are, who your characters, your values, how you treat other people and, and the influence you can have on, on other people is what really, I, he, that's what he taught me. And that's what I'm able to pass on to other people. And if you think about a first responder, a lot of times people think it's either you're responding to the domestic call or you're responding to a car accident or the house fire. But as you know, what you're really responding to is people and people in tragedy. And often we're put in positions where we're trying to console people or we're trying to slow down the chaos or we're trying to help them. I tell people we're a social worker. We pay some bills. We help feed the dogs. I mean, there's a lot of non-policing that we do in this job. And I think because of Mr. Black's influence, I think I looked at people more than I looked at the person before I actually look at the label that we often put on people. And he helped influence that. Beautiful. Well, I would love to get to your law enforcement journey. But just before we do, I know, as you touched on, you went to the Marines first. So what made you choose that branch? And then just kind of walk me through your experience there. I had an uncle that was a Marine and he had a, he was in Vietnam and he just had a, he was so calm, mellow, down to earth. Um, I I think often he would talk to me about his experiences, which he probably wouldn't talk to others. And that had a huge influence on going into the Marine Corps. And be quite honest, I thought the Marine Corps was an extreme challenge. 
if I could become a Marine, then I earned this title that can never be taken away, number one. But number two, I thought the Marine Corps would open up doors. I didn't think I was smart enough to get in college. I knew my family didn't have the money for college. I think there was so much chaos in the home that college wasn't even necessarily a, an option, at least in my mind. It was more of, I need to get away. I need to figure out who I am, what I can become. And I felt the Marine Corps was that branch that could do that. Um, there is something unique about being a Marine. And like they tell you, the few, the proud. And it's true. Once you step on those yellow footprints and you get through boot camp and you earn a title of Marine, it's something that cannot be taken away from you. And it has its own mystique. It has its own legend. It has its own hardships that anyone in the military went through. I just think the way that the Marine Corps kind of brands itself, it gives you a lot more confidence um, and a, a, opens up a lot more doors when you have that title Marine. Now you get into it and you realize that there's still people involved and there's complexities with that. And maybe the title, um, I look back now and I'm more proud of the title of being a Marine than maybe I was while I was in there. And I think in retrospect, you see the totality of it where you didn't understand it necessarily when you're going through it. Uh, but trust me, going through boot camp and getting through boot camp, yes, um, you earned the title of Marine. And I was small there too. So it was, it was even more of a challenge for me. And I don't know, man, I, I've taken hard roads to get to where I need to go. I'm sure there's easier roads, but for some reason, if it was hard, I decided to go that route. During your, your time as a Marine, were you deployed anywhere interesting? Not Well, I, I was in from 1986 to 90. The closest I came to combat was we were in the Mediterranean and the United States had shot down two Libyan jets. Um, and we were sitting in the bay of the ship all ready to go. Um, we were going to go into a Middle Eastern country. Uh, and it was at high tensions during Libya. We sat down there for about two to three days and never actually deployed. So I didn't see combat, but I spent six months in the Mediterranean and six months in Okinawa, Japan and the Philippines. And although I didn't see combat, I, it really was an interesting perspective. If you talk about having empathy for people, I think that had a huge influence on me too, to see how other people around the world lived. You're 18, 19 years old and who gets to travel the world at 18, 19. If you do, it is kind of an eye-opening experience to see how other people live and where we think where we think someone might be poor, it is a totally different level of poor and really human survival. Um, I saw some stuff in the Philippines where, I mean, people live in not on a, just on the street, but literally in doorways. And there was a river that was like sewage and people would throw money into the sewage or, or candy and kids would jump in to get it. Um, the desperation that you see, and it's just literally survival every single day, uh, that had a huge impact on me and seeing what others would do for just to survive and get money. Um, I, it really had this stark contrast of the haves and have nots, and I'm not getting political or necessarily philosophical on it. It is more of there really are haves and have nots. And I think my perspective, it was, man, I'm grateful to be able to have a roof over my head to have a paycheck every week. Sometimes it was paycheck to paycheck. Um, but I was also very grateful to be from this country to where if I ran into hard times, I knew there was always some kind of resource or some kind of help. And I've had those hard times financially and 
emotionally and like everybody else, but there's always been that support. Imagine growing up in a country where you don't have that support and literally you're surviving just to eat every single day or just to get water. And you do see that when you travel to some of these other countries. So it was a good experience. Plus, it was a cool experience to go see things that you never thought you'd see, like the pyramids and the Pope and the Vatican City. Um, it gives you this eye-opening uh, view that it's not just you. There's a bigger world out there. There are more people in the world. There's a lot more issues in the world than what we realize. And I think that allowed me to become even more introspective and be more grateful for my for my road and kind of gave me that naive hope that you could make a difference in the world and that there were things that you could change and that maybe coming back to the United States or wasn't it wasn't as bad as I thought it was in my childhood this could be good and bad because I think in a way you kind of push your stuff aside and say well my pain isn't as bad as this person's pain so why should I feel it which may not be good because your experience is your experience and maybe that's what happened is I pushed my stuff aside and said, look, I don't have it nowhere near as bad as some of these others, but there's things in the world that needs to change. And maybe that's part of the hero complex too, is seeing that and then coming back and saying, I want to make a difference in the world. Yeah, it's it's hard to kind of comprehend as well, because when you look at a lot of these poor countries, and I just watched a documentary on um, the Philippines around that time, it was the, the Marcos family, wasn't it? Imelda Marcos, I think. So yeah, it was I complete was tyranny. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw people living in cardboard boxes and uh, just the, there was dead. I saw bodies in doorways where people just died there. Um, I, I, I think it gave you a, a unique. You had this Marine Corps base, which it was its own little city. And we were obviously protected and we had food every single day. But you would go out on patrols or we would do exercises in the field or you just go out to the town of Subic Bay and seeing some of what, how people lived. Um, and I did get a chance to go a little bit further out into the households and they really were, there's some places where it was cardboard boxes and that's where people lived. Um, and they're doing things um, from a personal level, whether it's prostitution, um, whether it's stealing, whatever it is, um, it, that they're doing it to survive. And like we talked about, I don't think consciously back then being 18, 19, I thought about the moral or immoral. You just, the world tells you things are right or wrong. And you look at this and you go, well, wait a minute, you're doing something wrong. But look at the, why they're doing that. It is literally to survive and maybe it didn't hit home then. It took several decades for it to finally hit home, but maybe that laid some of the groundwork for questioning what is right and what is wrong. What's moral and what's immoral. I was talking to my son. I just got back from Europe and we uh, spent a lot of time together, just me and him, and it was fantastic. And one of the conversations was about black and white, meaning, you know, good and bad. And I told him the story of the Somali pirates. And when you look at the backstory of how basically that came about, it was the overfishing of the oceans out off Somalia that the local fishermen used to use as their, you know, their, that's how they made money, that's how they fed their family. When I forget which countries it was now, but um, some of the Baltic ones, I think, um, were overfishing them. Now they're start to starve. Now they've got no, no way of making money you know, legally. And now, as you said, desperation, the necessity to feed your family takes over and it pushes you down another path. So good or bad, or is it a gray area? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I don't know. I try to find that fine line. If 
if you're doing something that you need to survive, but you're hurting someone else, I think that maybe that line does get crossed. Um, and especially if you're using violence, that line gets crossed. Or if you're using violence to intimidate or to take from others, then that line gets crossed. It's one thing, uh, and there is no such thing as a victimless crime, but it's one thing if you're stealing food. It's one thing if you're doing prostitution. It's one thing if you are out on the street and you've got the scam going um, to, and because you literally need that to survive, to get food and water. It is a whole in your country. You're not from the United States where these, these social services. It is literally everyone fending for themselves. There is not the country's not backing you up. They're not supporting you. There are not social services. There's not people doing outreach with you. You're literally on your own just to survive for the next 24 hours. Maybe there's one part of that, but when it turns to violence, I think that's when it becomes a line for me is when you start taking others from others violently, when you're doing it for your own selfish needs, your own greed, and not necessarily because it's survival. That's one thing, but you know, we can talk when we get into addiction and a drug dealer, there's a lot of those conversations that it, my core doesn't agree with it, but intellectually there is some validity in what's being said so a question i go back to questioning what's right or wrong and i'm not trying to determine what's right or wrong i don't necessarily think that's always my place i will say that there's a lot of gray area for me and i think it's almost incident by incident or case by case instead of just general this is good this is bad this person's bad this person's good or a group of people are good or bad absolutely yeah i mean you look at a lot of the the nations that have changed after the prohibition of drugs and how, you know, whether it's Colombia or Mexico, you know, now, of course, a cartel member is a horrendous person. But did they wake up one day and just decide to do that or are they are a victim of their environment? And your victim maybe is a strong word for someone that's, you know, as horrendous as that. But, you know, are we are we cultivating bad people by, you know, them growing up in the environment that they're born in? Yeah, you know, it makes me think, and it, there is a little bit of a line you helped me identify, and that is, are you doing it for power or are you doing it to survive? And a lot of times people do bad things against other people for power, and it doesn't even have to be violence. I mean, look at our elections. A lot of people go into powerful positions, and yet they become extremely rich. They didn't hurt or kill someone necessarily, but they they themselves become very well off while others suffer. Uh, I think... I think that ends up being one of the big things for me. Are you doing it because you want to overpower someone and you want that power over them so that you can take from them? And it doesn't even have to be material things. If you take their freedom away from them, if you're taking their idealism, their philosophies from them, then that that to me is a problem. And that is more troublesome than someone necessarily going to a grocery store and stealing a pack of meat because they need to eat that day. There's a difference. And I'm not saying that the person stealing that pack of meat is right. Maybe what I'm saying is that person should have help and resources to get them on their feet. And there should be some accountability, personal accountability towards getting toward getting to that ability to fend for yourself and to help yourself and get a job and whatever else you need. Now, the thing with power, that's a whole different story because that's someone doing something for their own personal gain. And I don't know if that can be taught, punished treated or resourced out to change somebody because that is someone who literally wants to take away from others and are doing it because they want power over someone else. Now, some of it could be the argument, the pushback could be like you're talking about the Somalians. Well, you took everything away from me. 
So now I'm going to take from other people. And is that not humanity for centuries? Uh, we take things from people and then we seek revenge and then we want it back. And there's always someone trying to overpower the other. And I think that's what bothers me out of anything. And whether it is a first responder, if you look at any police issue where there's been controversy, it is often, it's not even, there's underlying issues, but it is that power over somebody. And that's what bothers them. And whether it's a police officer, whether it's a firefighter, a country, a politician, uh, the Somalians, whoever it may be, if you're trying to take overpower someone else because you are taking from them, that's different than a person in need or a person struggling with an addiction or mental health. And that, to me, has less reason, less justification than the other person. I will agree it's gray, but in my viewpoint, that is something that can separate the two. No, absolutely. I agree completely. I mean, to the point where you're now murdering people on ships is, is wholly wrong. But the, the origin story of some of these these people, you know, you, you realize, okay, these actually originate from something that was preventable and something, as you said, the origin story is power and greed. I want all the fish. I want, you know, to decriminalize, um, excuse me, to, to, to create drug prohibition so I can power over the Mexicans and the blacks and, you know, sustain my job because alcohol prohibition was a complete fucking disaster. You know what I mean? That's, that's, you know, Harry, Harry, is it Harry Ensley? Anslinger, Harry Anslinger, excuse me. If you look at the origin story of drug prohibition, it's all about power. It's all about, you know, prejudice. So, you know, the, the what I see is that they're always going to be the horrible people in the world. But the more you create chaos in communities, the higher chance there is of having, you know, more bad people and, and the the more elevated the worse people are. So in, in Mexico, maybe some of those bad people were bullies. And, you know, now look at some of the worst people are just... Some of the crimes that are happening in that country are unheard of, absolutely heinous. Yeah, you took away, you hurt me, you bullied me, you put me down, you used violence against me, and I'm going to project that back onto you. Almost like a revenge, like we talked about, you know, being that kid, you can either go down this path of I'm going to be introspective, resilient, and I'm going to try to make a difference in the world, or you're going to hold it in. Isn't in that what anything is when we're talking about mental health or anything that we struggle internally? It is, do you internalize it? To the point where then you project, project it onto other people, you use it as manipulation, you deflect onto other people, you, you cause them pain because somehow if you if you feel the, my pain, then you can relate with me instead of being vulnerable and going, hey, here's what I went through. This is tough to talk about, but here's what I went through. There's two ways to connect, it, it seems. One is to be open and vulnerable, which seems like on the surface, the hardest thing to do but it's actually the easiest and most productive, but it's the one we do the least. Or you can go down this path of holding on to this bitterness and this anger and this resentment, and I'm going to take it out and put it on other people. And somehow then that cycle continues. It's funny. The It's not funny, but it's funny in that here is this cycle of violence and pain that continues and, and goes on to other people, but we're not cycling that vulnerability and that's not something that is going on to the next chain and going on to the next person. Vulnerability usually stops with one person and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa I don't know about that. But violence continues in cycles, in, including generations, countries, uh, cartels, whatever it may be, whatever group dynamic or individual dynamic. It seems like we're more willing to give someone pain than we are to share our own pain. 
Absolutely. Well, I would love to kind of walk you into your law enforcement story then. So what made you transition out of the Marines and then walk me through the the other uniform? I, I, I knew being a Marine would open up doors to become a cop. And again, I knew since I was a kid, I wanted to be a cop. I was going to change the world. I was going to make a difference in the world. I honestly believe that this uniform can have a positive influence on the world and change people and, and make a difference in the world. So again, I didn't think I'd get in college. So I thought the Marine Corps would open up those doors. And it did. Putting um, Marine Corps on the application opened up a lot of doors. Plus, during testing time, having any kind of military experience gave you those points. Um, but again, I took the hard route. I ended up, my dad was an auxiliary officer at a smaller community than where I'm working now, right next to, next to the community I'm in now, Newtown. Um, it was a small community called Terrace Park. And there was a talk about another mentor, a police chief, who was this worked out constantly, believed in, he he embraced the Andy Griffith, the kind of Mayberry town, and that that's the way you policed was you solved individual problems and then you didn't see these big problems. Um, you didn't see crime because you were going in and dealing with the human being and dealing with some of these chronic social issues. Uh, he had a tremendous influence on me and he hired me auxiliary, which meant I didn't get paid. So I was working downtown at the Weston Hotel, making eight bucks an hour. Uh, I lived in Newport, Kentucky, which is right across the river. I couldn't afford parking downtown. So I would walk from Newport across the river to downtown to work and then have to walk back. And I saved all my money for gas so that I could drive the 10, 11 miles, 15 miles to Terrace Park and work on the weekends as a non-paid cop. That's how much I believed in this job. It was my it was my mission. I knew I was going to be a cop no matter what. So I did that for a couple of years and um, ended up having to file a bankruptcy. I was literally broke. Uh, I was literally the typical not having money where you eat Roman needle noodles and tuna. I did that. That was my meals every single day. Uh, and then again, I'm walking to, back and forth downtown because I can't afford parking. And I just told the story in a speech I gave. I remember going to a financial counselor. And she's sitting there and we're, and she's telling me, so let me get this straight. You make eight bucks an hour. You can't afford parking. So you walk back and forth to work. And the reason why you do that is to save money to go drive to be a cop where you're not getting paid to be a cop to where you could get hurt or killed being a cop and you're doing it for free. And she goes, and I said, well, yeah. And she goes, why would you do that? And I'm like, well, I'm Batman. Why wouldn't I do that? (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't say Batman. That's what I thought. And I said, because I want to, I want to be a cop. I'm going to, I'm going to make a difference in the world. This is my dream. And she told me sometimes dreams aren't meant to come true. And it knocked the wind out of me. And I'll fully admit I was overly dramatic and crying and I'm going to show you, I'll be a cop. I'll save the world one day. Like she even, I don't even know who she was. She probably doesn't even know who I am. Um, But she sat there and told me, here's what's going to happen. You'll either achieve your dream or you'll file bankruptcy. And she was right. I did both. I had to file bankruptcy, but I ended up achieving my dream. And a couple of years from Terrace Park, I got hired here in Newtown. And I started and I thought I was the richest person in the role making $26,000 a year. But I walked through the front door of the Newtown Police Department. And I'm not necessarily a big religious person, but I'm not going to exaggerate. I stopped in the foyer and had this feeling and this feeling overwhelmed me and this voice and probably inside my head, whatever it was, said, this is where you'll change the world. 
and I've lived my life and my mission towards policing. I know it's goofy. I've been picked on about it. I know it's naive, but I literally believe I was put on this earth and to wear this uniform to make a difference in the world. I didn't know what it was. And again, it's not like I used my childhood experience and said, well, I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to accomplish A, B, C, D, E, and then that'll change the world. It was literally, I just walked into this place and said, this is where I'll change the world. I have no plan, no idea, um, but here I am. And I learned that in trying to achieve my mission, I learned more about me and people help me probably just as much, if not more than anything I've ever given to the world. So this small town has become, I, I don't know if it's real, if it's a dream and I'll wake up one day and this craziness wasn't real, but it has had a huge impact on me personally and has had a huge influence on my life. Well, that's so good to hear because it really underlines, I think, something that gets lost in the first responder profession as we go through our career. There are some people, of course, that join up just for the salary, the benefits or whatever. And I think there's a lot a lot more affluent careers you could choose if that's your goal, but there, there just are. And as you said, even with the power, there is a very small amount of people that want to be policemen, firefighter, you know, whatever, because of the prestige and, and the power. But most of us have that same calling. You know, when you walk through, you want to make a difference. And I think what's what I've realized through this this journey that I've been on learning through this podcast is our generation were kind of raised with this idea that man is Terminator, Robocop, you know, Rambo. Um, and so that kindness and compassion that brought you into the, the profession, fast forward 10 years, you kind of bought into this, I am Batman. That was actually a good analogy. I'm Batman. And so Batman doesn't cry. Batman doesn't you know, give himself compassion. He doesn't, you know, he's, he loses that through his, you know, his journey as it were. And so then, especially whether it's the mental health while we're wearing the uniform or you transition out, you have a lot of people that identified with the, the facade that is the police officer or the firefighter. And I think it's so important for us to remember whether you're still in your career and you're struggling with your own compassion fatigue or, you know, identity or you've transitioned out that before you became a police officer or a firefighter, you were a kind, courageous person that wanted to make the world a little bit better. When you transition out, you can do that in a thousand different ways. So I'm assuming that once you, you know, finally kind of hang up your uniform, you're still going to hold the torch for making the world better, whether it's through addiction or whatever life takes you. And I think that's such a powerful message that we have to remember when we stood on the diamond or whatever your kind of drill ground looked like, you were in shape you were probably more mentally resilient than the average person in your community and you were driven to do good in the world. And the, the job in many ways is kind of designed to beat us down, not deliberately, by, but through devolution. You know, the calls have gone up, the resources have gone down. And so it's so powerful to remind yourself of that wide-eyed young recruit as you are in the mid-career or as you transition out that you have not changed. You've changed, but that burning desire is still there. And if you can find a new way of serving, that will make that transition a lot more easier versus, oh, I need to be a security guard or I need to go teach at the fire academy because that's all I know. Yeah, it's challenging for people getting out of the military if you don't have that purpose. It's challenging for first responders. You got to have that purpose when you get out. But I'll say the purpose for anyone if you see people that struggle, and if you look at the underlying issue, there's economics, there's race, there's this haves, have nots, 
but what a lot of it comes down to is if you don't have a sense of purpose, then you lose a sense of life. You lose this, what am I here for? And what am I going to contribute to society? No matter what that contribution is, whether it is being a household member that takes care of the kids and raises the kids, there's purpose in that. Whether it is going and providing for the family because of your work, there's purpose in that. This was my purpose and to change the world. And, and you hit on a lot of things. I'm, I'm a police chief and I sit there and interview people who want to be cops. And you always ask, why do you want to be a police officer? I want to make a difference in other people's lives. It is everyone says the same thing. But then you get on this job and somehow that gets lost. And I gave a speech to the police academy last year and I told them, don't ever lose the feeling that you have of this night. Don't ever forget this night. And when I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about what happens is as kids, we have these imaginary heroes, whether it's Superman or Batman, and we want to be them and we want to make a difference in the world. You want to be a firefighter, a cop, a paramedic, whatever it may be. You want to be a first responder. So you go into that superhero role and then all of a sudden reality hits you and life hits you and you see the bad of the world, the brokenness of the world. And the first thing you do, the first thing you lose is that kid. You lose that inner child that sat there and wanted to take on the world and take on all these challenges and make a difference. And that's the first thing lost. And when you lose that inner child, you lose that naivety, you lose that hope. I, 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 people made fun of me about being naive, but I've tried to hold on to it. And I'm going to tell you, there's times I've lost it. There's times I've not been naive enough to have hope. There's times I've been, I don't want to do this anymore. There's been times where you, you see and do so much or you have your own personal betrayals and you go, I don't want to do this anymore. But I think in the long run, if you can hold on to that inner child and be just a little naive, enough for the purpose of why you wanted to do this, to make a difference in other people's lives, to make a difference in the world. Look, man, I'm not, I'm not talking naive enough to say that I can solve all the world's problems, but I am naive enough to say that I can make somewhat of a difference in someone's life. And if I make a difference in that person's life, maybe they make a difference in someone else's. And then instead of this escalating of violence being transferred from one person to another, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's purpose. Maybe there's naive. Maybe there is a, I, a, we start having this chain that goes on to the next person of being a good influence, a positive influence and making a difference, starting from that mentor or that one kind act or the little bit of empathy or being a cop or firefighter and having that inner child where you go to a call and say, I'm going to make a difference in this person's life. And then maybe they'll make a difference in someone else's life. It was, we make fun of that. But we don't make fun or criticize the person that's projecting the violence and the bad stuff they had in their life. We don't try to stop that pattern as much as we try to stop the hope. Whenever there's hope, we try to, to squash that. Well, wait a minute. That's naive. That's vain. You have a hero complex. Well, what's so bad in doing that? Um, and I think that's one of the things that, look, the past, I've had a rough year. I've lost that inner child. And it's interesting we're having this conversation because the past week I've been thinking about what do I need to get back to? And I need to get back to having that inner child of why I'm doing this job. What is it about this job? And you're right, my career is coming to an end. But if I can keep that inner child, I can find some another way to make a difference. And I got to be honest, too, is you, you always think about when you get towards the end of a career, how am I going to react? I am 100 percent content. I have surpassed all my dreams. 
I can honestly say that I accomplished my dream of making a difference in the world. Did I change the entire world? No, but I did lay a foundation and make some change. So I'm really content. And the reason I got there is because I held on to that kid inside of me who was naive enough to have a little bit of hope to think that they could make a difference. And I don't have the bitterness with this job. I, I've seen a lot of tragedy like everyone else. And I use that as life experience and I use that as empathy, but I'm not going to walk away from this job being bitter and upset. I'm going to walk away knowing I made a difference. And really, if I was to give advice to anybody coming into this field, and that's what I told the, the recruits at the graduating police academy, is never lose that inner child. Never lose why you did that. If you think you're Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, whatever it is, never lose that. Have that to carry you through the career because that'll help you go through the ups and downs that'll help you turn the tragedies, not only the tragedies you see in life, but the tragedies you go through personally and the tragedies that you see within the job itself. Um, as you know, there's many times you feel helpless and we don't talk a lot about being helpless in this job. Um, and really it's that helplessness, not only in the job, but our personal lives that knock us to our knees. And if you have that little bit of why am I doing this, going back to that kid inside you, I think that'll help drive you and, and keep you moving forward and keep you in the long term of this because it really is a long game. It's definitely not a sprint. As you know, it's a marathon. And if you can have that, that childlike mentality of wanting to have purpose and make a difference, I think it allows you to go through those up and downs. And that's kind of what I try to pass on to my younger officers. Have that, that kid be a little naive, have that hope, and you'll have a really good career. Well, firstly, thank you for that. I mean, I agree 100%. I want to get to you know, that one pivotal story that you told on the yeah. TEDx and some other, other platforms. But before we do, when you first entered law enforcement, you know, people did the best with what they had, you know, so many times in, in history. And it's very well, very easy now to stand on 2022 and look back and, and you know, say, why, why could they think like that? You know, what were they thinking? That being said, when you first entered law enforcement, what did the legal kind of perspective on addicts and addiction look like early in your career? Oh, it was take them to jail. It was arrest them. It was, they were the bad guys. Um, it was not only the person selling the drugs were impacting society, but those using the drugs were impacting society. The peripheral crimes of the prostitution, the thefts, um, the, the, the stealing, the overdoses, all that played a role in you're not just impacting yourself, you're impacting the rest of society. So you're bad. And the role was to take people to jail. I, I started off my police career in, in undercover drug work. It was buying crack cocaine. Well, we got ripped off constantly, but that was, <laughs> the, we we're supposed to be buying crack cocaine. It was never really crack, but that's what the way it started. And then I was on SWAT for 10 years. I was a team leader and a lot of our operations were drug operations. And especially starting off 10 years ago, it was interesting to see the transition from SWAT because drugs were very important and going in and doing those dynamic searches was important. But as my career uh, ended, came closer to the end of SWAT, drugs and being willing to die for drugs was not necessarily a priority for us. And we did alter our tactics because it was we're not willing to die for either someone selling or using drugs. Um, yes, they have an impact on society and fentanyl's kind of you go back to questioning when it become, when it comes to fentanyl, and that really changed the game because people are dying from that. But I think we changed our tactics saying drugs are so big um, and it's so ingrained on our society 
should an officer necessarily die over just that that particular issue? So we did kind of change tactics with that. But in the beginning, it was you had to be in jail selling drugs. You had to be jail using the drugs. Anyone that had anything to do with drugs was bad, period. And my job as a cop was the way to fix it, take you to jail. And somehow we thought that fixed the drug issue. Well, we talked about environment again, and you know, I bought into this the same as everyone else. Look at the television. This is your brain on drugs. I mean, we were getting it from all angles, and a lot of us, you know, I was born in 74, so kind of of that generation, it's all we ever knew. So we're indoctrinated on that way of thinking. So I had uh, Sam Quinones on the show who wrote the book Dreamland that was, you know, based obviously on, on the, the addiction in Ohio specifically. My first city that I lived in after Orlando when I moved to the States was in Broward County, which was the, the base of the pill mills. So I've had some kind of interesting perspectives during that time. Walk me through the last 20 years and what impact has had on your state or your county specifically. Yeah, I look at my career and first it was marijuana. And you would stop people and everyone had marijuana and it, it became bigger and bigger quantities. And yet we were writing tickets for it. And then it was acid. Same thing. It would get to the point of writing tickets. Crack cocaine became so prevalent that unless you had a certain amount here in, in our area, you were not going to be able to take it down to court. So we were actually citing people with minor possession of crack cocaine to our mayor's court um, or drug paraphernalia. And then you started seeing that role with heroin. And then uh, all of a sudden fentanyl hit the streets and you see this trends. And as a cop, you're going, I'm supposed to be taking people to jail, but the jail is full of people that use and sell drugs. Um, our jail on average processes at, at, at one time was processing 10,000 people a year, just on heroin related issues alone, just on heroin. Well, there's paraphernalia, the drug heroin itself, 10,000 people a year. Um, so you start realizing that you can't get people into jail and you start looking at what am I doing here? And it becomes that revolving door. And now we start talking about the compassion fatigue, the mental health for first responders and cops, because now it's this revolving door and you don't feel like you're making a difference. You feel helpless. And we're to the point where we're just writing tickets and not even taking someone to jail. So you start questioning the whole law and the drug issue itself. But we saw this transition from just marijuana to acid to cocaine, crack cocaine. And the opiate transition was first, it was the the prescription pills. And I kind of joke about it. Oxycontin, someone would come down and knock on our door and say, hey, man, someone stole my Oxycontin. And we'd be like, man, that person's an asshole. Why would they steal your medication? Don't they know you need it? So we would take a report on it. A week later, the same person comes and goes, man, someone stole my Oxycontin. And I go, Man, you got to stay away from these jerks that keep stealing your drugs, man. That's messed up. Don't they know you need it because it's medicine? Third week in a row. And it, it takes us a little while as cops sometimes to figure out clues. So the third week <laughs> in a row, the person saying, wait a minute, this guy stole my oxygen. I'm going, hold on here. I don't think they're stealing your pills. I think you're selling them. So we actually have put in a policy. We weren't going to take reports for thefts of Oxycontin, um, not knowing that there was really this wave under the surface that we could not see or predict. Um, and then all of a sudden pill mills and, and Sam talks about it in his book with uh, Youngstown and, and Portsmouth and many others were these pill mills in Florida was a big place. Even in my small community in Newtown, we would get intelligence of people driving down to Florida when we shut down the pill mills here in Ohio to go to Florida and get the pills, drive them back up and sell them. 
um, so that we had seen that transition to prescription pills. We didn't see necessarily a lot of the overdoses. We saw a few. Um, but then that transition, when we really shut down on the pill mills, and this is what law enforcement's good at, we're good at enforcing laws. We, we shut down the pill mills. We take a lot of the pills off the street. What we could have never known was how smart the drug dealers and cartels were knowing that here's this powerful opiate. Okay. If you can't get it from a doctor and you have to get a prescription and it cost you, I mean, there was times it was 10 bucks a milligram on the street to buy a pill. So you could be paying a hundred bucks for one pill. And that drug dealer is going, wait a minute, I can give you black tar heroin or heroin. It'll give you the same thing. You don't need a doctor. You don't need a prescription. And plus I'll sell it to you for 25 bucks, 50 bucks. You want a hundred bucks. He'll get you a gram. If you, if you want to split it up, we'll split it up. We couldn't predict that. And unfortunately, the cartels are like the Avon lady. They know their customer much better than we ever did. And they had a huge advantage. We had to, we had ripened this market from legal prescription pills. And I'll go back to the power of pharmaceutical companies, lobbyists, of people in Congress, people who ignored laws um, and got people addicted. And I tell people, because there's definitely a racial component to this even going through the crack cocaine days and seeing what happens now, a lot of times people say, well, you only change because it's, it's impacting a certain group of people. It's impacting white. I wish it was that. I wish it was a noble enough reason that we would realize that there was race involved in this. What it was, was the numbers were so high, we couldn't ignore it. And probably for the first time in the United States, it was unhealthy for you to have healthcare. That goes to the haves and have nots. The haves were more impacted than the have nots in this particular issue because you could go to a doctor with healthcare and you could get prescribed pills. And next thing you know, you're addicted. And then we see this transition where we shut down the pill mills. And where are you going now? Now that person who has health insurance, that person who has a job, that person who is considered middle class or whatever we labeled them are now on the street buying heroin and using these street drugs. And you saw this big shift to that street drug, which is the cartels knew. And we started seeing black tar heroin and powder heroin. And then all of a sudden in 2015, 16, we saw this drug fentanyl and especially in the Cincinnati area, car fentanyl. And things have never been the same since. Not just in the Cincinnati, Ohio area, but across the country. Um, there had already been this group of addicted people. We as a society, as politicians, as elected officials, as local officials, never foresaw what was coming down the road, but the cartels did. And they took advantage of it, having this right market, which I got to be open here. They didn't create this. A completely legal market created the level we're at now. They didn't create necessarily addiction itself. But if you get in, you can get into other prescriptions, Adderall or whatever it may be, whatever we prescribe. And again, you can tie it into mental health. You can tie it into trauma. You can tie it into childhood experiences, all of these drugs that we're using for physical pain, for mental pain, instead of going more holistic or doing long-term things, we wanted these quick fixes and the cartels knew it. And the cartel had a quick fix. Didn't need a doctor, didn't need a prescription. You could do, I can do it cheaper. And I'll, matter of fact, I'll drive it to you. Like Sam talks about in his book. You need heroin, I'll drive it to you. You need fentanyl, I'll bring it to you. What doctor's office does that? They don't. There's all kinds of rules and policies on that. So next thing you know, we have a country that is probably more addicted and more addicted to one of the deadliest drugs we've ever seen and having more of an impact than any other drug we've ever seen in the history of the world. 
Well, it seems that there's a common denominator as well between a town or city that was built on a certain industry. That industry closes down more often than not going overseas. And now there's an epic void, whether it's a mining town, whether it's a you know car industry. In your area, was there an element of that historically as well? Not necessarily, not kind of. In certain parts of, of the Cincinnati area, there was definitely industry that shut down. And we do study, and there's been studies on how did the economic impact something being shut down influence addiction? And obviously there is a role in that, but I will say one of the biggest drugs that gets ignored that you always see an increase on in, whether it's an economic downturn or COVID is alcohol. Alcohol is one of the most devastating, dangerous drugs I have ever experienced in my 30 years of policing. It's just that you don't have 108,000 dying immediately from it. You have 400 some thousand that takes over a lifetime. There are over 100 some thousand that die every year from alcohol issues. But if you combine them over the years, it's probably millions compared to the illegal drugs. So there is this, you can tie into the economics and you look at a place like Middletown and AK Steel or or some at Portsmouth and having some of these industries shut down, or you talk about the pills in West Virginia, Virginia with the coal mines. Uh, there is definitely a relation between I lose this economic stability. My ground has been taken out from under me. What are we really talking about? We, we go back to not having this purpose, this hope. And when you don't have purpose and hope and you have that fear and that insecurity, and you don't have the ability to be resilient or the resources to make you resilient. The, the reason why I became resilient in school, because I had wrestling coaches. I was resilient in the Marine Corps because I had the Marine Corps to support me. I'm resilient in law enforcement because I had this entire town support me through the ups and downs. If you don't have that, we go back to like those other countries where you're just trying to survive day by day. And literally, that's what happens when it comes addiction. But there was people who were pushing this pill saying, wait a minute, I know you're hurt. I know you're in pain. This will help you get through it. Hopefully one day the coal mines come back. Hopefully one day steel comes back. Hopefully one day manufacturing comes back. But then you see this world transitioning to electric or solar or whatever it may be. And if you're that person that's tied into that industry, you don't have support to be resilient. You can't adapt. There's not the resources to help you. What do you feel? Despair. And then what do you got to do? You got to fill that void. And that void gets filled by either alcohol or drugs. And, and it's interesting because the prescription pills weren't a cartel that pushed that. That wasn't Mexico. That wasn't China. That, that was doctors and pharmaceutical companies and people who were who going in certain. I mean, I remember the, the news talking about in West Virginia, one small town had enough pills for 500,000 people. And I think there was only a couple thousand people in this town. People were making money. And again, I'll go back to the power. Those people had power over them. They knew they were in despair. They took advantage of them and they gave them pills and got them addicted. And then we said, wait a minute, this is bad. This is wrong. This is illegal. We're going to cut you off. So we cut them off. And then all of a sudden, where are they going to turn? To heroin and fentanyl. And then what do we do? We judge and criticize them. We didn't judge and criticize them when they were taking the opiate pills, prescription pills, but we judge and criticize them here. We don't judge and criticize them when they're necessarily drinking unless it becomes a problem. Then all of a sudden you're an alcoholic and then we judge and criticize you. But we never judge and criticize the people that were in power and that created this. We never judge and criticize our own ideologies and perspectives that could have said, why don't we work on resources in the community? You hear it a lot more now 
of people saying we need to go into these communities and build them up. Let's build up economics. Let's help people get jobs. We do it within our coalition. It's one of the things we try to work on is can we get you to stable housing, a job and transportation? Because that's what you really need to survive. You need those things. If we can get you there, we're, we're pretty good in getting you into recovery. You're hearing that now, but you didn't hear that back in the 90s and 2000s with prescription pills. And now that there's fentanyl and there's and there's heroin, you still have the country kind of split on this person's bad. And you have some of us saying, no, it's not the person that's bad. It's the circumstances that are. And if we help the circumstances, we could help the other person. Um, so it, it is interesting how economics play a role in that. Haves and have nots play a role in that. And the power of some people have a role to play in that too. But then there's a the loss of purpose. And I'm not taking away personal accountability. But when you don't have purpose, I don't think we are going to should be expecting personal accountability or discipline out of somebody because they don't feel that hope to, to continue. Absolutely. Well, I think another terrifying statistic is I think the U.S. makes up 4% of the world's population and we consume 75% of the world's opiates. So what, what is what does that tell us? Yeah, I mean, it speaks volumes. That's the that's the problem. But that's just it. I mean, the, the, uh, who was it? Hulu did an amazing um dramatization of beth macy's film uh, or book dope sick and i'm actually supposed to be getting her on the show she's written another book now but when you see in that particular example the predatorial element that they took knowing damn well there was an addiction element the, the whole point of oxycodone was supposed to be that it was less addictive than any other opiate they realized it was more and they just kept going and going and going and i agree with you 100 percent. that's almost an unheard story unless you've read the books or, or watched the television program and the you know the the uh, exploitation of so many elements even alcohol i mean alcohol should not be illegal we've <laughs> we know al capone for that reason mm -hmm. um but we have a mental health crisis and and that void can be filled with whatever you want social media narcissism you know gambling porn the list goes on but when you take some of these people that are born in the philippines or some of the african nations i'm struck by the fact that a lot of them the simplicity of their life they still seem to find joy what is it about the US and the UK and Australia where we have so much and yet so many people are so damn sad? And that is the, you know, the real nucleus of the issue that we have to address. I think it's values and I think it's what we hold as a priority. They probably do hold happiness and simplicity and, and values within a society a lot more than we're very individualized here. And it's more about me making money or me having the power and then somehow I get status. Um, but you, what you were saying there, too, is not only what you read in the books and see in the movies, but when you see it personally, you you start questioning things. And I go back to your your question of when you became a cop and you're looking at drugs, it was good guys, bad guys. And we took bad guys to jail. All of a sudden, I got confused about who was the good guy and the bad guy. That person in that suit, the, the slackers from Purdue Pharma, they... They weren't like that 18-year-old kid who's standing on the street corner selling heroin or crack cocaine. We go look for that kid and we, we arrest him and put him to jail for 25 years to life. Because look what you did. You had an impact and you killed other people. I'm not saying that's not true. But what about that person in the suit who wasn't on the street corner, who killed just as many, if not more? And what are, what are both of them doing it for? Money. And power both, again. Ultimately power. Ultimately power. So then I started to get confused. Who's the drug dealer and who's not the drug dealer? And then, you know, Trump when, in his first uh, term talked about killing. We should execute drug dealers like some countries do, like the Philippines was doing and many others. 
And my response back was, tell me who the drug dealer is. Point them out to me. Because for every illegal kid you can find on the street selling drugs, I'm sure there's 10 others that are in a company in a suit or in a white coat that are selling for the same reason, power and money. And yet they're killing just as many, if not more, because they have more access to people. So who's the drug dealer and who's not? All of a sudden things got clouded and it really that and then the family dying just shifted my complete philosophy on drugs. And it was no longer black and white. It was clouded. And I'm not saying that I know what is the answer. I'm just as confused as anybody else when it comes to this issue. And I think that's what I try to speak about is the complexity of this. If you want me to go after the drug dealer, then fine. Define who that drug dealer is and tell me and show me who that is. Because that kid is not the same as the person in the building, but they're doing the same thing. If you want to define the addict as someone bad, then tell me who's good and bad, especially when that person lost their job, they're in physical pain, they don't have hope, they're in despair. Is that person bad because they did drugs? Well, what about the person that gave them to them? And that wasn't the kid on the street. That was in the doctor's office or that was the pill mill that people were making money and to your point, the power. So it gets awful confusing. And I think if anything, with all the underlying issues of race, inequality, the haves, the have-nots, the confusion of who the dealer or dealer is not, the ones, if you can find silver lining in fentanyl, the only silver lining I've ever been able to find is now these issues have bubbled to the surface. And I got to tell you, what it's not race that changed our mind. It's not economics that changed our mind. It's not necessarily anything that has and have nots that changed our mind. It was that there were so many people that you could no longer ignore it, excuse it away, or push it under. And there was any one good silver lining about fentanyl. It is forcing us to have these conversations and question who is right, who is wrong, who's good and who's bad, who has the power and who doesn't have the power, and how do we legislate and how do we find solutions within that? So really, I think that's my job as advocacy is not just tell the stories, but talk about the confusion. And I'm not just talking about confusion from an idealistic way. I'm talking about it from personal experience and seeing how it impacted my small community, how it impacts the city of Cincinnati, Hamilton County, and our region and our country. Well, I spent 14 years as a firefighter paramedic. I became paramedic later in my career, but um, and witnessed, I've worked in... um, down by Miami, then out in California, and then around the Orlando area the last 10, including protecting a local theme park. I saw overdoses in all of them. You know, I, I had some that we saved literally their last breath, you know, and caught and brought them back, one in a Dunkin' Donuts, I can remember very clearly. And then others, there's one guy that just you know, haunts me to this day because he had shoulder surgery. And, you know, he was a husband, he was a father, and I just think he took too many you know by mistake or whatever whatever happened and i remember working the code and i wasn't a medic yet and i you know suggested narcan they pushed one and i just saw a change in his eyes but my you know the medic at the time was working his mega code and we never got him back but you know over and over and over again i saw not only specific overdoses but as you talked about the um what was the, the phrase you used uh peripheral causes and i agree 100 percent. the homelessness the the prostitution the, the violent crime and so many of these a lot of them were to feed addictions ultimately some weren't like you said some were more of the power level but so you have so much crime and this is from a, a kid that grew up on a farm in england so you talk about the culture shock when i put the uniform on and got to see behind the curtain right so i saw this and this is why i've become such a staunch advocate i'll, I'll talk to you in a minute i'll tell you the story about the the kind of 
proactive measure that really opened my eyes. But there's a very specific element in your career that you've done talks about regarding an entire family. So I'd love to hear, you know, as you get in your career, what you start seeing personally and what changes your perspective and direction on this. Yeah, this family, it was interesting because the Cincinnati Choir wanted to do an article and they asked for our public records, thinking that thinking I was exaggerating. It was every day there was a call. There was a, it was domestic violence or a theft or we were fighting with them. Literally, it ended up being a stacks this high on our desk. I mean, 30, 40, 50 within a file and there's several of those piles. This family was some who was really known to us. And again, I had this idea I was going to change the world, didn't know how. But in the process of doing my job within, I've been here for 29 years, but within 21, I'd seen this entire family die one by one. The mother on July 4th, she uh, abused prescription pills and alcohol. When we went to the house, she was there with prescription pills on the table and a beer in her hand. She had three sons. And I remember being on some of the first calls that the calls were always chaos. It was always dramatic. I'm, and I'm not talking a little chaos. I'm talking a significant amount of violence, um, domestic violence, fights in the streets, chaos. They would fight with, with us and run from us. But the youngest brother was shot and killed by a crack cocaine in, in Cincinnati. And then the oldest brother, who had five kids, overdosed and died on heroin and fentanyl. And the last of the brothers, I could tell in, in the TEDx, was he was a kid who personally set my car on fire as a young cop. I dealt with this. I was a victim of him. And I had dealt with him for 20, over 20 years, um, everything from burglaries to fights to running from me, all kinds of stuff. And it was a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving and I was at home. I got a call from one of my officers. His name's Charles, but everybody called him Chucky. And they said, hey, Chucky's down here. He's crying. He overdosed. We brought him back with naloxone. Um, he wants help, but we don't know where to take him. We didn't have a coalition at the time being a small community. It's not like a big city where they have a lot of resources. You can just take somebody. We didn't know where to take him, but I realized he was the last of a fan, not just a family, an entire generation. Literally, he was the last brother. Um, so I said, well, we got to do it or we can't keep him alive. Take him to the hospital, find something. If we have to pay for whatever we have to pay for, we got to keep him alive. About an hour later, the officer called back and said, hey, he's refusing help. And having a better understanding now, and it ties into our discussion of having hope and, and not having hope, it's almost as if that familiarity of despair is so comforting. It's more comforting than actually the hope of trying to get better. Because if I go and I get better, what if I fail? I'm judged and criticized again. I can't live up to that hope. It's going to be physically and mentally difficult. It's going to take a long time where I can just stay in this despair. So I have a better understanding now, and it's not uncommon for people not to want to get help. And I don't think it's necessarily willpower. I don't think it's character. I think it is a loss of hope. It is that despair that a lot of people don't want to get the help. So being a cop at the time and not necessarily having all addiction resources, understanding addiction, my tools to help someone with addiction at the time was gun, taser, handcuffs, and jail. So I said, well, jail applies here. Take him to jail. We got to keep him alive for at least one more night. The officers took him to jail. He stayed alive for one more night, got out the next day. He overdosed on what was left of his heroin and fentanyl. And I realized it was not just a family, but an entire generation lost. Here I am in this small town, middle America, where this stuff doesn't happen. And I witnessed an entire family, the mother and all three of her kids die. There's a third generation. Each one of those brothers had kids. The oldest had five. We were already dealing with the third generation. Uh, three of the five, 
from the oldest brother to struggle with substance use disorder, using fentanyl, meth. So we were already on our third generation. So I've seen literally three generations of one family impacted by addiction. And it had a huge impact on me personally. I never thought that I'd be upset and crying over this kid, um, all the stuff he had done to me, all the stuff he had done as a kid. But I went back to thinking about his life and thinking about what he grew up in. And I wasn't familiar with ACEs or the trauma of family trauma back then. But being a young cop and seeing this for 20 some years, and I remember, and I wrote this in an article, one of my first calls was a domestic call with a mother and a boyfriend. And I remember the three kids, their three boys, they were younger at the time. They're just sitting there, their eyes wide open, trying to figure out what is this chaos. And then as the years went on, I remember seeing them sitting on the couch and there was no longer this wide eyed. It was numb. They had become numb to this. And I remember one particular call. I'm standing next to the couch with three boys there. The mother, the boyfriend are going at it. They're just screaming and yelling. And I feel so uncomfortable in this chaos. And I'm sitting there looking at these boys thinking this is what they live with every day. No matter what help we get them, they're always going to have to come back to home. And this is their home. And you literally start seeing that this is their fate. And you talk about what being a first responder and, and feeling helpless. How do you help a family? How do you help a generation? How do you help one of them to get out of that when they have to go back? And that's what their life is. And that's what they see every day. There is no hope. There's nothing but despair. And then to see them all die one by one. Um, it had a huge impact on me. I, I wrote an article talking about having the only thing I could have for them was empathy. And not that I agreed with them, not that I condoned this behavior, because trust me, he hurt a lot of people. I was one of them personally. Um, but I had empathy for his story. I had empathy for what he grew up in. And it really changed my view on addiction. Because to your point, here were some people who were powerless, who had no power whatsoever that they could make a difference within their family or their life. The next generation's impacted. And I felt the only thing I could do was tell their story and at least give them some empathy. And maybe if I was vulnerable enough to open up and write this article, which was completely vulnerable at the time, um, I put myself out there, not only as a police chief, but as a cop. And I openly talked about this family, the impact they had on me, the empathy I showed them. And trust me, man, there, it's better to get physically beat up than to be mentally or emotionally beat up because I got beat up. I lost friends. I got kicked out of positions. I almost lost my job. Um, it was it was a tough, tough road to be vulnerable. But I felt that the story needed to be told. Their story needed to be told because what we were doing, not only locally, but as a country, wasn't working. And I felt helpless, to be honest with you. I couldn't help a family. My whole world got shattered. I was no longer Batman. I was no longer a superhero because I couldn't even save a family in my small town. So that had a huge impact on that kid we were talking about internally. That kid was lost. Be internally, that kid's going, you, you have not lived up to anything you said. You couldn't even help a family. How can you be a cop? How are you going to save the world? You can't save the world. And it was interesting because I wrote that article. There was no intention of being an advocate. There was no intention of speaking out. And be quite honest, it was just an overpowering emotional experience. And I felt the way for me to get over it was to write about it. That's how one of the coping tools I'll use is to write. Um, and I wrote and there was no intention of putting it into an article. I just woke up at three in the morning. I was bawling. I didn't know why I was bawling. Why am I bawling about this kid set my car on fire, the loss of this family? 
because everyone else looked at them as as junkies, as addicts, as losers, as a criminal. And in some way, wrongfully or right, it was valid because they hurt a lot of people. And I even wrote an article, they shouldn't be martyrs. But then again, look at their experiences in their life. What did we think was going to come out of that? We, as much as we try to give resources, there wasn't enough resources to help them. So I, I, I wrote this article about the empathy. And I remember about three, it was three o'clock in the morning. I kept going back and forth if I should send it to the inquirer. And this is not an exaggeration. Literally, my finger ho- hovered over the send button. There were several times that I decided I wasn't going to do it. I was scared because I knew I would open myself up. I knew once I put myself out there, there's no going back. Um, and that little silly voice came back. And maybe it was that inner kid that said, this is where you're going to change the world. Hit send. And I hit send. And it did. It, it changed my life for the bad in the beginning. It was really rough and I was very isolated, um, but it ended up paying off and, and it ended up uh, helping to make a difference in the world. And in some way, that family is making a difference in the world because they are, their story is being told. And if it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. And being able to tell their story and the family story and the family, the kids have spoken up quite a bit. And um, I started a podcast and the first guest I had was the daughter of the oldest brother and her to be able to tell that story was man, coming full circle and hearing, and she talks about not having hope to have, having that despair. She has survivor's guilt. Why did her whole family die? And she lived. Um, I think having that empathy really allowed me to be vulnerable enough to speak up about it. And then in that vulnerability and become an advocate and be able to get other people to speak up. Uh, but that, that had a huge impact on my life and on my career. Now, were you a chief at that point? I was a chief. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't talk about chiefs weren't supposed to be political. We weren't supposed to talk about these issues. It's not something that a lot of cops, I'm sure that you and in your service, you probably didn't write articles or at the time, probably didn't. You were not probably going to even speak up and talk to other people outside of your inner circle about what you saw and what you experienced. And now look at you, you have a podcast and now you're able to do that. But think about 10, 15 years ago, would you have been willing to speak up about it then? It was very challenging, and especially in a law enforcement career. I did. I lost friends. I had friends call me up and say, hey, I don't agree with your stance on addiction. When a cop gets killed, you're going to have blood on your hands. And I'm thinking, Jesus, <laughs> is it this controversial, this bad? Um, and they said, I'm never going to talk to you again. And I have not talked to them since. Um, I got kicked out of organizations who didn't believe in what I was saying, who didn't believe that we should advocate for people that were using drugs because we looked at drugs in this black and white. It was either good or bad. We weren't talking about the gray area. And I think that um, at the time, it wasn't something that a lot of first responders did. There was definitely handfuls throughout the country, pockets that were. But at the time, it was not something that police chiefs necessarily talked about and wrote about and wrote about how a family's journey impacted them, how the death of a family that everyone else looked at as bad um, impacted me personally and how we should not judge them. I think that was really the ultimate thing was there was so much judgment and I, and I wrote it in a way I get a lot of pushback because people say, well, you're criticizing and judging them. I wrote it from the perspective of society, how society thought I should view them. That was, and the title of is why care about another dead addict. And I've had people really upset at me about that title, but that title was because that's what I heard from society. When I would tell stories, people go, why should I care about that dead addict? 
And really what the article is about is this is why you should care because that was a person because they had a family because there's another generation that's impacted because here I am a first responder and I saw their life and I saw the chaos. I saw the trauma. There is legitimacy to this trauma. There's legitimacy to family trauma. There's legitimacy to adverse childhood experiences. I've seen it. Um, So I think that's why I was so passionate about writing and telling it from that perspective of here's how society tells me as a cop, as a police chief, I should view drugs. But I'm telling you as a cop, as a police chief, here's what I saw and here's what I see differently. Um, And I think that perspective was helpful in helping to change and open up some doors and open up the conversation. Well, I think the the first responder perspective is so important, yet we hardly hear it. You know, you think about, I mean, I could name several Navy SEALs that are very well known now in the leadership position or, you know, different other areas, and rightly so. But you can't rename a police officer, a paramedic, a firefighter who's, you know, out there as the kind of voice telling the world this is what we see. And yet it's such an important perspective. And I I agree with you completely. I mean, I, you know, was was indoctrinated like so many to think the way that we talked about that old way of thinking. But when I started seeing it for myself... I started questioning it because I'm sorry, what you're telling me and what's actually happening in the real world don't match up, you know, and I've always, I've hated labels like, you know, hooker or whore and and bum and all these things because it's just a dehumanizing pigeonhole that people put so they don't have to actually engage with a human being. But with a real kind of pivotal moment that happened to me and people listen to the show heard this story a lot, but my mother and brother moved to Portugal about 20 years ago. And once I started this podcast, my mom said to me, hey, did you know that we decriminalize drugs here, decriminalize addiction? Um, and so ultimately, long story short, I went to um, Lisbon and sat down with the man who spearheaded this initiative in Portugal and got to hear, I got to see their addiction center at that particular place. And pr- prior to the year 2000, they had a horrendous addiction epidemic in Portugal. There'd been some sort of conflict in one of the African nations that was a Portuguese colony. Their soldiers had gone over, they'd come back. You know, many of them obviously traumatized, lent into to opiates, and then, you know, the rest is history. They had tried the war on drugs model that so many of us had rammed down our throats since the, you know, the 30s. And Portugal was kind of considered almost like a second world country, kind of looked down upon by many European nations, but actually is very progressive. Um, and they they have a strong sense of community. So what the government did is just put it to the people. Hey, we're thinking of trying something different. And this, this guy, Zhao Gulao, you know, came from a different perspective. Like, what if we start addressing the root cause? Very long story short, um, they they try it. They have a huge success. Less than 10 years, they went from the worst addiction in either Europe or the world. I, I have to research that. I always say that. But to the lowest. And, you know, I've been to Portugal multiple times since uh, since they've moved there. And it's incredible. But you talked about the blood on, you know, on you know, blood, excuse me, cop blood on your hands. Well, what the actual ripple effect of, of addressing this, this uh, issue at the root cause is you firstly the misnomer is that you can buy drugs in the store no you're just taking addicts and you're putting them in the mental health track so there's you know mental health counseling there's addiction counseling there's job creation as you said you're giving you know homes and purpose to these people and you're removing the stigma so now they can come out the shadows and ask for help most people don't ask for help because they're going to get arrested if they ask for help and under current you know rules in this country but the ripple effect then was the streets became safer not only for the general public but for the police 
and you now opened up the court system and so you had the resources to start tracking down the sex you know traffickers and and the the you know child molesters and the murderers and all the really horrible people and the the drug smugglers and the drug sellers those are still criminals but the addict the person who's caught with the user's amount is not even arrested they're given an interview where they are told of the resources that are available to them so you're not told well you have to go to this addiction center they're given these options and you know nine times out of ten they'll walk into it themselves now is there a small group of people that they can't help absolutely and we can't focus on those absolutes those anomalies but overall they've done incredible things and so then when i look at what i've seen in the united states of america east and west coast as a firefighter and a paramedic and all the yellow sheets i've pulled over people from either directly you know drugs or all the ripple effects and you see the violence on our streets to me we need a courageous leader to finally say enough is enough this is working in portugal this is working in switzerland i forget there's one of the the central or south american countries that did the same thing had the same success it may not be exactly apples to apples but we can take these models and we can start applying them here in the us but it takes a leader with a set of balls you know male or female version of and 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 that but also we need voices like yours so it's so powerful to hear these testimonies start to come out of all these first responder professions saying, look, we believe this for so long. It's just fucking wrong. It's wrong. It's not working. It's creating more and more problems. And people are dying by genocidal numbers. We have to do something different. Yeah, what you talk about is, so Portugal and a few other countries have decided, I'm not going to overpower my people. I'm going to empower my people. And really, when you take that stance and you empower people, giving the ability to do that, you can make significant societal changes. So the challenge is, and idealistically, I believe in safe supply. I believe in the Portugal model. And I was over, I was in Wales and got to speak with a bunch with people from France. And then there was a gentleman from Barcelona and he was talking about safe consumption sites and how Barcelona has really significantly reduced its overdoses, the needles in the park and, and deaths. And to your point, it wasn't just that they had a safe consumption site. They also had um, treatment right there. They had the ability to go on to ongoing care. And it's more of a, a health, a public health issue than it is a criminalization his, issue. I think the challenge here in the U.S., and I think why it's challenging for someone to have the balls to be able to, to step up and say this, I mean, we can say it all we want. I can say we need a safe supply, and there's many people out there advocating for that. We need safe consumption sites. You need the ability to have a safe supply, safe consumption site. Someone can walk right to treatment, can get towards active recovery, get housing, get a car, get a job, and then get into active recovery. Here's the problem with it is we don't have a safe supply. And then the United States is so ingrained in not only addiction, but that unsafe supply, who would do the safe supply? Would it be the government? Because if it's the government or we go to Purdue Pharma or we go to a pharmaceutical company and say, hey, let's go back to prescription pills. Let's give prescription pills to people that are kind of in Canada's talking about doing this, working on a safe supply. But I think in the US here, it's so challenging. It's more than someone standing up and saying it. You have to shift the ideology of power, of capitalism, and who gets paid. And I often wonder, because I don't dispute what you're saying. I don't dispute the pure harm reductionists who say we need to decriminalize drugs and we need to have safe supply. 
I, I agree wholeheartedly, but my question logistically is who does it? Because think about where this really started, not addiction itself, but where we went to a different level. It was a legal supply and it was from the medical field and it was from the pharmaceutical field. Do we go back to that? Because if we do, then health insurance is going to be involved. They're going to make money. The pharmaceutical company is going to make money. The medical part is going to make money. And how do we get the illegal trade out? Because if it costs $100 for a pill and you have to have health insurance, are you going to go there or are you going to still go to the unsafe supply on the street? I think that's the challenge. Yeah, no, and I agree completely. And I think where the real, you know, the real kind of nucleus of this, though, is the actual identifying the root cause of why they're leaning into it. Because as you touched on, that's the tip of the iceberg compared to alcohol consumption in this country. So, you know, we're talking about opiates and this particular one, fentanyl obviously is is just, you know, murdering people more so than anyone. But my thing is the hope would be that a lot of people that just needed the stigma that removed just needed some help. Those would be that bulk that we probably see, you know, fade away as far as from the addiction side and you wouldn't need to be supplying. There's always going to be a group that sadly, yeah, you're going to need safe addiction sites and you're going to need, you know, um, you know, whatever kind of clinics that you need to to maintain that. But I think that's a very small amount of people. I think most people, your shift and even, you know, if so be it, you they go into you know, marijuana or if there's something else that's, that's completely safe that they can kind of be transitioned to. I'm a huge fan of CBD. I think it's amazing. It has no psychotropic effects at all. But I think that so many people have this multi-generational trauma going on. If we can fix the trauma, then the need for anything um, unhealthy to fill that void is going to start diminishing. Same as Johan Hari's work. I mean, he's been on the show and I love what he says, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. So, we have, you know, what look, what is our country like at the moment? We've had the last two so-called leaders, and I use that term incredibly loosely, have driven, cleaved this country into two and driven people against each other. One of the biggest thing we can do is just bring people together. Now, I'm not waiting for some president to magically do that. I'm talking about in homes, communities, you know, cities and states. But it, there's so many areas that we can fix. But the problem is we always point at the ones that don't work and go, see, it's not working. But I think if we actually bought into this model, and I agree with you completely, you got to be careful that you don't create another opioid crisis, you know, popping pills legally. But if you give the the funding to the mental health, you know, element, the the addiction counseling, i.e. getting them off these opiates, helping them withdraw, and then giving them, whether it's the psychedelics that are working so well for so many of our veterans at the moment or other things that work, you're then going to have a much smaller group of people that then, yes, you're going to have to find some sort of, you know, safe way of administering medical grade, you know, insert camp compound here because they are struggling to get off. But I think it's going to be a much smaller group we'll be dealing with. Yeah. And I think you touched on something that maybe it doesn't happen in our lifetime. I often talk about is when I'm speaking out or advocating, I'm really tearing down walls. I'm not expecting for that big shift uh, to happen. What I'm expecting is if I tear down walls and maybe that next generation can start rebuilding differently, can build the structure a little bit differently. Um, and look, we're talking, you're talking about things we would not have been talking about 10 years ago. And it's because people are speaking up and saying, and to your point, a lot of it's first responders speaking up. A lot of it's our military people. We're and it, kind of interesting. 
that we, the the tough guys, the, the tough men and women that are in these tough industries are the ones who are saying, look, we've seen this. Now we're going to tell you about our experience. We're going to be vulnerable. And literally, we're shifting conversations and societal conversations. And we're saying we need to be more open to different things. Maybe what we've done in the past hasn't worked. There's still that push and pull. And especially when it comes to addiction, there's still a lot of people who think if you do drugs, you're wrong. You need to go to jail. Um, but more and more first responders are speaking out and saying, wait a minute, that's not working. And to your point a little while ago, I was told it's so important to speak in uniform because the public has this image of what I should be saying. And I'm saying something different. And that opens up doors. Um, and I'm doing it based off my experience, like you talked about with your experience. You're able to you saw it. You saw it. You touched it. You smelled it. You felt it. You're able to share that experience with other people who don't have that experience. And it opens up those doors. So we're breaking down some walls. And building a foundation, I, I agree that that's the direction hopefully one day it goes. The issue in the United States is going to be who has the power, who gets the money. And then it's also going to be, again, I go back to alcohol being it's legal, but it is one of the worst substances I've ever seen in my life. I've watched family members stab each other, hit each other in the head with shovels over alcohol. Um, you don't necessarily, I always joke that uh, people go out and spend hundreds of dollars to get pot and they share it with everybody, but you try to steal someone's last beer and man, it's on. <laughs> so, and you can get that anywhere. So alcohol is still so ingrained in our society. And there is a lot that goes on from a mental health standpoint, not only from labeling, but the haves and have nots that I think it's challenging. Uh, it would be great if we could snap our finger and say like Portugal and have the infrastructure there, have a, a connection like you're talking about, be so connected that you can have these conversations, people be open to it and say, you know what? The past hasn't worked. We are gonna do things differently when it comes to addiction. We're gonna change our entire society. I, I wonder if we could do that in the United States because there's so many different competing ideologies. There has to be money behind it. Who's gonna pay for it? Who's gonna have the power? Who's gonna have the influence? But I will say this, you, I, and others who are having these conversations and your guests and, and other people across the country are starting to open the door and saying, this is what needs to be at least discussed. And if we can lay that groundwork, then maybe somewhere along the line, the next generation or two generations behind us, maybe if we're lucky to live to 150 years old, you and I will be able to look back and go, man, the United States did change. Look how better it is. And to your point, there's I always hear people say that about 10% of the population is going to be some sort of addiction, cigarettes, pills, illegal drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be. But to your point, if we looked at things differently and we actually had a healthcare system, not a sick care system, not something that kept people in chronic conditions, but actually helped to get them better. And it wasn't just a pill. And I'm not going to blame that all on healthcare because part of it's society. We want to get back to work. We go to the doctor and say, I feel pain. I don't want to feel pain anymore. And we put it on a doctor who, if doctors were able to be completely honest, they'd probably say, well, you need to go out and lose 20 pounds, fix your diet, go start working out, start doing some cardio. And I'm telling you what, give it three months and you'll start feeling better. No, what would we do as a society? We go, I'm not doing that. That's crazy. Give me a pill. I need to get back to work tomorrow. That's how I pay my bills. So what did we do? We give them a pill. So there has to be this complete mental shift on how we view health, how we view health care. Are we really doing health care or sick care? What role does the healthcare industry, the pharmaceutical companies and health insurance have? And what is our role? 
as society? Where's our accountability and our responsibility? You know, the people in the military and a lot of us, and, and I'll, I'll go and say, so a lot of first responders have health issues, not only mental, but physical. And those of us, and you go back to wrestling had such an impact on me. The Marine Corps had such an impact on me. I was beat up as a kid. I, physical fitness is so important to me now because one, I know it opens up doors. It gets me respect. It allows me to do my job at a higher level. I don't have as many health issues, but are we doing that as a society as a whole? Because if we're not, then it's going to be challenging to have a Portugal model because again, I'm not going to put it all on doctors and pharmaceutical companies. I'm not even going to put it all on the drug cartels. Some of it is us if we're not willing to make changes ourselves. Um, but then again, is society allowing us to do that? And maybe that goes back to answer a little bit of your question. How can we make up 4% of the population yet have this extraordinary amount of addiction? Well, and it goes back to, you know, what we touched on earlier. You're sitting in front of me now in great shape. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here, the same body composition as when I first became a firefighter. Um, and, you know, your upbringing, my upbringing, directly and indirectly contributed to where we are today. We pushed against, clearly, inactivity. We pushed against, you know, fast food every day. But then you take the last two years, and I've talked about this. I even added an extra episode of this podcast every week to disseminate as much good wellness information because what everyone was told was a polar opposite of how you make someone physically and mentally more resilient. The alcohol and fast food was delivered to your door while the gyms and parks and beaches were closed. I mean, it was insanity. So this is the problem is that you've got ownership and I 100% agree and I think you live it and I live it, but you've also got environment. You know, and I look at so many people like those three little boys that grew up in that, you know, violent household and we've all seen them wearing the uniform those kids are doomed. If that's all they've known, your parameters from A to Z are here, you know, from alcohol to, you know, Xanax and everything in between. That's all you've known. That's your baseline. So by changing the environment that encourages men and women to move more, to eat better, to have better community, you are 100% going to positively affect the mental health crisis. But right now, with this divisiveness that's going on, with this consumerism, this capitalism, and not capitalism itself is bad, but this drive to, to you need more, you need more, you don't, you know, you're not worth enough unless you drive this and live in this, that is destroying us. So aside from the actual hands-on, boots-on-the-ground addiction um, tactics that we have, I agree completely. We have to build a community that encourages movement and, you know, time in daylight and nature and, and local farms that grow good, healthy food that aren't riddled with chemicals. All those have to be in the conversation or we're not going to fix it. Yeah, yeah. And you hit on something that was, it's fascinating. And it made me think about stigma and judgment. One way, the only way we're going to get to all those things is we have to get over the stigma and judgment. You hit on something that just, it clicked. During COVID, we did not shut down alcohol. You could go to a liquor store, but we had people that overdosed on drugs and got arrested for being out during COVID restrictions. They both have addictions, yet this one was legal and we kept it open. This one we consider illegal and that person went to jail. They both were doing the same thing. They were out satisfying this need, whether it was to fill a void or whether it was real addiction. And we handled it completely different. One was not judged and one was judged. And that's what we end up doing in societies. And I think that's to me, if there's anything anyone gets from me, it is I don't have all the answers. All I'm asking you to do is keep an open mind. That's it. 
if you can keep an open mind, because most people have validity in their discussions when it comes to addiction, mental health, whatever it may be. The only thing I will not validate is letting somebody die. There is no other group that I'm asked as a police officer to openly let die other than those that do drugs. It's astonishing. I have heard people say, why don't you just let them die? You probably heard it. Yeah, what a waste of Narcan. Why do you keep giving it to them? It's unbelievable. But we don't do that with anyone else. I've had a person hit a telephone pole. It's their fourth or fifth time drinking and driving. We said, let's get that person treatment and care. I had a person try to commit suicide 12 times. Not once did society tell me to let that person die. They said, you should risk your life to save theirs. Yet this person with addiction, we say, it's okay to die. As a matter of fact, during COVID, it was so bad for you to go out, get your drug, overdose on it. We didn't take you to the hospital. We took you to jail. Yet that person who wanted alcohol because they were stressed out because of all the COVID stuff, because of they of hope, not having hope and despair, what was going to happen in the next couple of years, we completely let that happen. Matter of fact, don't worry about the COVID. Go get your alcohol and come back and do whatever you need to do. We split and we judge based on the substance, instead of looking at the whole, the addiction, the mental health, the power, the not power, and the haves and have-nots. It's easier to label than it is to get into the complexities of these issues. And again, everyone has validity except for letting somebody die because this is such a complex issue. And if you have that open mind, then maybe you look at that person that overdosed during COVID and say, you know what, they shouldn't be treated any more different than the person that went down and bought the alcohol. They both are doing it for the same reasons. Let's figure out how we can support both of them. Absolutely. Well, I know we're kind of getting in on the time. I want to get to the coalition and the work you're doing. But just before we do one side note, because I saw that you did a topic on your podcast on this. Talk to me without loading the question at all, your perspective of the violence that we're seeing in school, some of these school shooters and, you know, whatever kind of lens you have on that. Yeah, so we had someone who threatened to shoot a business and multiple people wrote a 500 page manifesto. And it gave us quite a bit of insight into the way that person was thinking. Now, this person had a diagnosed uh, mental health condition, a serious one. Um, But you know what it taught us was a failure of the criminal justice system, especially when it comes to mental health. And and I'll be honest with you, we criticized and we were so upset at them that we went to them and we were screaming and yelling. And they said, I'm one person. I have a thousand people on my caseload. Do you think I even have time to read this manifesto? So that tells you the overwhelmingness of the system and how we're failing there. But we failed that individual. And what we ended up finding was we worked with mental health. I had a bunch of resources from the FBI, Secret Service, and I had this team around me. Um, But one of the most important members of the team was a psychiatrist. And he was able to determine not only the person's mental health, but they were getting the wrong medication and wrong dosage. And we were able to get that advice to mental health uh, officials locally, get them on the right dosage, get them on the right medication. We've not had a problem since. Um, But, you know, speaking to him, what it really was, was here was someone, and you read his manifesto and you spoke to him, here was someone who was picked on. I'm not talking just criticized and judged. I'm talking openly manipulated, set up to where they humiliated this person, um, where he was physically assaulted where he was criticized constantly every single day by people. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what drove all of it, because obviously he had mental health, serious mental health issues with it. But here was someone who felt, you know what, you're going to cause me pain, then I'll cause you pain. And this is what he wrote in his his writing that was very telling. He wrote, "I, I know the cops are there. I don't care. I'll get as many of you as I can. And then the cops can kill me. And you know what it told me? 
He didn't care if he killed one or a hundred people. As long as you felt that pain, you would understand his pain. Basically, that's what he was saying in the manifesto. You want to know how I feel? You want to know my pain? I will show you. I will physically cause you pain. I will mentally terrorize you like people terrorized me. And then you'll understand how I felt. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not condoning it. I'm only explaining it from his perspective. And having that perspective, it really opened up our eyes that a lot of times when you talk about these active shooters, it is someone either with a serious mental health issue or someone that feels like they were wronged. And one of the things that we learned was that there is a pathway to intended violence. And the very first step to intended violence is it's not like a passion robbery. It's not like you get into a fight with somebody and shoot them or you go commit a robbery and you shoot somebody. The pathway to intended violence, the first step is a grievance. And it doesn't mean that you and I have to agree with the grievance. It doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't mean we have to understand it. But that person has a grievance towards that other person, that other culture, that other race, or that organization. And that grievance, what you want to try to do is mitigate it as much as possible. If you can mitigate it, you reduce the risk. But here's the thing. Generally, you can never take away that grievance because it's up to the person to either let it go or not. And if it's someone with serious mental health, they probably won't. If it's someone who's upset to your point because I lost my job, I don't have any hope and I don't have no despair. Like we're talking about the Vegas shooter who lost financially, who lost relationships, who felt like there was no hope and despair. And next thing you know, he turns and opens fire on a bunch of people. Um, his despair and his hope is being projected onto other people. And when we talk about mental health, it's one of the things, whether it is an active shooter, or it is a cycle of domestic violence from home to home to home or generation to generation addiction, or whether it's Somalian pirates or history throughout history, we've often projected our pain onto other people. It's just that we've gotten really good with how to do that and much more efficient with weapons, whether it is handguns or rifles or whatever it may be. We've gotten so efficient at having tools that although that tool by itself just sitting there doesn't necessarily hurt somebody, but when that tool is wrapped with somebody who wants to project their pain onto somebody else, it's devastating. And literally hundreds, if not thousands of people, I would even argue it's not even thousands of people. It could be an entire country that is impacted by these acts of violence where someone projected their pain onto somebody else. Um, and I'm not, again, condoning or excusing and saying it's mental health. So it should be we should have sympathy for that person. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that that is what may have drove that person to that. And maybe if we intervened a little bit sooner, like they're talking about the University of Virginia shooter, um, that person was on a, the radar. Were they able to get to them quickly enough to be able to intervene? But here's another challenge. And we face this with our guy. In the United States, you can't just take someone's freedom away. They have constitutional rights. Um, and we struggled with trying to get this person help. We we were able to, because of the manifesto, involuntarily commit them and get them into mental health treatment. But if we would not have that manifesto, if we if we would not have pushed the mental health people to read the manifesto, the judge to read the manifesto, that person may have fallen through the cracks. If we would not have taken the initiative ourselves to go get that person the right medication and follow up with them, they could still be a problem. Now, try to multiply that as a country with people who aren't on the radar and by the time they get on a radar, it's too late. Um, but then it goes back to our general philosophical conversation we've been having about mental health. And that is, how do we deal as a society 
with people who don't have hope and, dis- and they're in despair? How can we get them thinking differently so that they don't have to project their pain on other people? Maybe there is a certain group that mental health, serious mental health diagnosis may not be able to get there, but do we have resources and institutions that help them? And what about the general public who is, there's some who may be teetering on that. I'm thinking about committing violence. I'm, I'm not thinking about committing violence. This one other life event that happens pushes me to that. And it's not even the active shooter. It could be someone in a domestic violence situation that shoots and kills their spouse. Um, you hear these horrific stories of people killing their families. Um, all of that goes back to that not having hope not ha- or having that despair. And then they project that pain onto other people. They feel that there is no other way to deal with it other than violence. And often they're not on a radar enough for us to be able to intervene. But I would even argue that even if we could, are we set up as a society that we can get that person the help they need? Or would we consider it a constitutional right? And that person has the individual right to own weapons, to make comments, to write certain things. Um, it is another gray area. That's the thing. We're not very good at taking complex issues and simplifying them enough to help the whole um, because our constitution is really about the individual trying to mesh it with the whole and it becomes a challenge. But ultimately, it's someone who has a grievance towards another person, a group, a race or an organization. And they're going to project their pain onto someone else so that you understand their pain or it's a way for them to kind of deal with that pain. Well, it's so sad because, I mean, the, the shooting happened this morning at University of Virginia um, this morning or last night. And then um, I just saw right before we started recording, I just shared a tragic story out of Whittier, California. I think they were L.A. sheriffs and a bunch of recruits running and a, and a car went wrong way and drove into them. And I don't know because we start recording if that was an accident, if it was deliberate. But the problem I have with this whole conversation is through my layman eyes, we have something horrendous, whether it's Uvalde or, you know, Sandy Hook or whatever it is. And immediately it becomes, you talk about the politicization, oh my goodness, politicization of addiction. And when you came out, it shouldn't be political. It's not political. It's human life. There's nothing about that as political. The same thing happens with these shootings where you have the anti-gun camp and the pro-gun camp. And the poor victims of this this tragedy get kind of cast aside or used as political pawns when the answer is actually you've got to have the multifaceted, you know, um, conversation about mental health and gaming and violent video games and, um, you know, films and sleep deprivation and, you know, the the wrong, as you said, psychiatric meds and bullying and, and all these areas that compound to make this perfect storm on these, you know, few, few lone wolf people that that then will either pick up a gun and commit atrocities with a gun, or they'll pick up a knife or a hammer or a machete or a car or their bare hands. And so if you're just talking about the weapon, and don't get me wrong, I don't think that you should be able to buy a 50 cal on a damn store in America as a civilian. It does you can't argue, oh, it's because of you know defending against America. They have drones. Come on now. But I do understand that we're in a country full of weapons. And so just creating, you know, full amnesty and anyone who's, who's the right side of the law is also a disaster as well. But with these, these violent episodes, episodes that we have, we have to have the whole conversation and all the little pieces of, of the pie that make up that perfect storm that creates in some of these horrendous tragedies that we see. You're 100% right, and we don't have those complex conversations. You, you kind of made me change my view a little bit because I said to simplify it. Well, we are simplifying it by politics. It's simple words, but it's complex issue. But if I simplify it by you can't take my guns away, I have a Second Amendment right, then it shuts everyone else down. 
And then all of a sudden, these other people are talking about the complexities of mental health. We couldn't get someone into mental health or we tried to get mental health or they were upset and I tried to call the police, but they couldn't do something about it. I, I, I think I was my first assessment was kind of wrong is I think we do simplify it. And maybe that's the problem is that we shouldn't be simplifying whether it's the gun or not the gun. To your point, it's all of those things. And the gun, it is an I mean, think about this. In the military and the Marine Corps, I was taught how to shoot an a, uh, M16, basically an AR-15, same kind of gun, shoot it five, 600, 700 yards, taught us marksmanship. I've been shooting since I was five years old. My dad taught me how to shoot. I've carried a gun on my side since I was 18 years old. I know how to use a gun. And I think a lot of people think it's challenging to pick up a gun or an AR-15 and then use it. And it's not. It's extremely simple. And I think that that's what we see with a lot of these active shooters is, yes, it, it is that tool may not be intended that way, but it is so effective and efficient. It is the tool of choice and it does hurt and, and kills a lot of people. And we, what do we do? We argue that we need in order to counter the guns, we need more guns. We need more people armed. Um, I mean, I'm a cop and a SWAT and I've been in situations and there's a lot of people who've been in situations of shoot and no shoot. It's not as easy as people think. Um, and even if we had all the guns, I mean, like I said, it was eye opening for that guy to write and he drew pictures. He drew pictures of us killing him and saying the cops will get me, but I'll get as many of you as I can. And in reality, he would, he would be able to get some people. We would not be able to stop him. And I tell people, whether you have armed guards in schools or buildings, whatever it may be, there's been police stations where people have walked in and shot cops in police stations. Um, and we have guns. So it's not a matter of that we can eradicate this kind of behavior. It's how do we minimize it? And often we look at the tool and say, well, we got to increase more guns because that'll stop people from shooting. But what we're not doing, and now there's this conversation of mental health, but then it gets into all these different things instead of actually increasing mental health services. Instead of actually, I am a big fan of red flag laws. I know a lot of people think it's controversial, but I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to intervene on somebody who makes a threat. Here's my thing as a responsible gun owner, even if I wasn't a cop, I am not going to threaten you with a gun. If I'm threatening you with a gun, then there's obviously something wrong. I do not think as a society, we should be able to do that. Um, and I actually tried to get a law passed here after that incident. It was not a business, one individual in a business would have to go and file a protection order in order to get some kind of help from this to prevent this guy from coming on the property. I actually helped. We got a group together. We put together uh, legislation, got it through the state. Um, but one of the things I put in there was if you're in a group of four or more people, because that's what actually the definition of mass shooters three. But I actually want one other and, and said, if you threaten to kill four or more people in one incident, you should have a red flag that allows the, the, a gun to be taken away immediately. You go in front of a judge and a hearing is, should you receive mental, mental help or not? And if the judge said, no, you're good to go, you get the gun back. That's not that it gets held forever. It's just a, a gap stop to where if you had a grievance and you're threatening to kill people, there's obviously something going on. And maybe it's as simple as having that gun just taken away for a little while or not having access to it, kind of like what we do now. Uh, you can't just go buy a gun without doing a background check. Um, it was almost that way. I got so much pushback from obviously gun groups who wanted me fired and not elected, which like I had to tell them I'm not elected, I'm appointed. So that's a good thing. But they pushed back so hard that we actually had to take that part out of the bill. Um, I was told the bill would fail 
if we did not take that out. So we took out this portion of being able to have a red flag and intervene, which to me, and I talked to all my friends who are gun owners, who have ARs, who shoot for fun. And I said, would you have a, do you think you should be threatening people with a gun? And they're like, absolutely not. It's for defending my life. Or if I need to do, do that, that's what it's for. Or if I'm using it for recreation, but I shouldn't be going around carrying and threatening to shoot four or five, six people. There's a problem if you're doing that. To me, that's a warning sign. And we'll go back to the mental health. And I, I, I believe this, but I don't always follow it. And especially as a cop, I should believe it. I believe people tell you what they're thinking. When that person says, I'm not going to jail, and I go, the hell, you're not going to jail. And next thing they take off running, and I go, shit, that person's not going to jail. <laughs> Damn they it. Told me. Yeah, they told me. Um, we should be taking that serious when someone says, I feel like I need to kill you. Or I'm so upset right now that I'm going to shoot you and I'm going to shoot my coworkers. That should be serious. We should take that seriously and we should intervene and at least start working on how do you stop it immediately, put a gap in, and how do you either direct that person to resources? Could it could be someone just out of the heat of passion says it. And by the time they cool off, they go, you know what? I was so wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I've learned my lesson. That's different. But if we find a person has an actual grievance towards a business or a race or a religion and we're able to intervene, we stop a shooting. If we're able to get that person mental health and we're able to get them the appropriate mental health, we can stop an act of violence. If we're able to step in on a domestic violence and be able to stop someone from using violence against their spouse before it ever happens because we took that threat serious, that ends up preventing. That prevents more than any kind of gun legislation we would ever do more than any one simplified answer to this, if we took the complexity and took that part serious, we could intervene a lot more quickly on the on these acts of violence and stop a lot more. A lot of people I hear have on here from law enforcement, it seems to be here in the UK, you know, the, the whole stop and search thing has been, you know, you got your guys' hands have been tied a lot. I had a very interesting perspective. I went to England and came back and both times my microphone, not the one I'm talking on, the one I travel with, um, they mistake it for some sort of like screwdriver and it's because it's got a metal shaft and, you know, it's, uh, it's clearly yeah. obvious. But the first time through, they were very confused. I'm like, look, I think it's a microphone. No, 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 no. They searched everywhere and then the supervisor came over and goes, oh, it's that microphone. And I'm like, okay. And I told <laughs> him, look, it's okay because I would much rather you be too safe than I'm being, you know, I'm in a plane that blows up. Same thing happened on the way back. Uh, but this time, he's like, are you sure you haven't got any chemicals near the microphone? I'm like, no, but something was popping hot. But again, we were there for, God, 30, 40 minutes while they searched me. They did the whole, you know, full, not the cavity search, luckily, but everything else. Mm -hmm. um, but again, in my mind, I'm like, look, you know, so I, if I was of different skin color, I could say it's because I'm whatever. The reality is, of course, that can be abused on, on you know, certain minute amount of cases, but... Overall, I understood that they're just trying to make everything safer for everyone else. And it's the same with this. If there are things that we can put in place that, you know, when you flag, you have the absolute opportunity to say, look, I was pissed off. I just found this. I don't mean that at all. You know, they do a, an evaluation like, no, this guy's good to go. Okay, beautiful. And, you know, that was just like you said, that pause, which is, as you touched on, the same thing with buying a gun. You go in and buy a gun. They're like, all right, you, you'll get it in three days. Oh, I've calmed down now. I don't need the gun anymore. You know, so I totally understand that. And it scares me that this ability to just pull people over. And that's how so many serial killers were caught and other, you know, horrendous people in society. 
that we're therefore making it more dangerous for our children, for our you know men and women in businesses, for you know all these organizations because these prevention um, elements that we've got in place are now being lauded as you know racist or prejudiced or whatever it is. And now there's a greater opportunity that these people will, will slip through the net and cause incredible harm, whether it's, you know, purely a, a gang killing or whether it's in some you know, elementary school somewhere. Yeah. And some of that, too, is this image on law enforcement. And, and when I got that pushback and it was funny because I was getting pushback by the gun groups who said, we know how you cops are. What you'll do is instead of four people, it'll be five. Or if I'm talking to a couple people and I just say, hey, I got this gun and blah, you'll take it as a threat and you'll abuse your power. And, and I'm not saying there's some that don't do that, but that was kind of the mentality of the argument was you're going to take it to the next level. Next thing you know, you're going to come into our house and you're going to take our rights away. Uh, it got so all, all to the what if group, uh, what if part to it that you couldn't find a solution. And to your point, we went back to square one where we we don't have that gap necessarily. And I think that gap is important. Back in our day growing up, and if I was getting beat up, I mean, I had to fight back and there was pain on both sides. <laughs> and I never worried about a gun. And it made you think, do I really want to get into this fight because I'm going to feel pain? Where now the fight could be a gun. And we have road rage incidents and we tell people, man, you don't know if that person has a gun or not. And there's been people shot over road rage incidents. Um, guns have been so prevalent. And if we don't have that gap, we end up using the violence. We go in that fight or flight mode that we all know about. The frontal cortex shuts down. We're not using the rational part of our brain. We're not thinking and making good decisions. We're going off a of fight or flight. A lot of police use of force. A lot of people talk about there's economics, there's race, which there are parts of that for sure. But what else that gets completely ignored in use of force when it comes to law enforcement is fear on both sides, the fight or flight response. And literally, you see people flee and you see people fight on both sides. We don't talk a lot about that. And there's really no stopgap to help that fight or flight stop, calm down, take a breath, and then be able to get to the conscious. It is challenging. I mean, I, I got officers here and we try to teach them the first thing you do under stress is take a breath, breathe. At least if you breathe, it gets you mostly out of that fight or flight. And you can start thinking consciously of what I hear, see, feel, taste, and smell. What are my surroundings? But we don't teach people how to do that when it comes to resolution conflict. We don't teach that in society or talk about it in gangs. We're so focused on the gun. We're not focused on the pause. Where if we focused on the pause, then yes, sometimes it would be a red flag on a gun. Sometimes it would be someone just ticked off at somebody and wanted to fist fight them. Maybe we find conflict resolution differently. Or... Maybe it was that time we pick up on somebody who had a grievance and was going to shoot other people because they were upset at them, and we stopped that shooting. I don't understand why we have a problem with a gap in society. I, to me, it's that simple to put to maybe at least put a dent and stop in some of these acts of violence is have some sort of gap where everyone just has this moment where they're not thinking of violence is the only answer. Because if you're in that fight or flight, whether it's running or fighting, there's some sort of action, some sort of violent action that it either is coming towards or going away that is causing that incident become more dangerous than what it probably would have been from the very beginning. We often talk about someone was stopped for not having a license plate light. Really what it was, the act of violence wasn't the license plate light. It was the fight or flight. It was that fear. But we don't focus on that. We don't focus on the fight or flight or the fear when it comes to 
a kid growing up in, like we talked about from this whole underlying issue of, of being in a place without hope and despair, that that's all they do is know how to survive because there's gunshots every single day. We don't talk about a gap there. And it really, when we talk about addiction, when we have someone from a quick response team um, and the coalition is really a community coming together. And what we're trying to do is fill in the, we're trying to give a little bit of a gap for that person, a resource that says, Hey, we're here. You don't need to do this. And often that gap allows someone to get out of that survival mode, that fight or flight mode and go, you know what? And start thinking with the frontal cortex and go, you know what? I am going to try this. But we understand the power of despair, of addiction, of mental health. We understand there's going to be relapse. But you know what we do is every time someone relapses or goes back, we try to get that gap again. If we can get them in that gap, it gives an opportunity for clear thinking and, and gets them on towards a better path towards recovery. Why can't we use that gap for violence? Why can't we use that gap for conflict resolution? Why aren't we teaching? I'll go to rhetoric, to political rhetoric. Wouldn't it be amazing if a lot of our politicians would have a gap before they said something? Your good legislators, your good politicians, your good people in history, your Theodore Roosevelt's, your, your Abraham Lincoln's, all your Martin Luther King's, your John Kennedy's, all of them had a gap. They thought before they spoke. It wasn't about judgment. It was about, here's the problem. How can we resolve it? it we don't have that nowadays. It is much easier to criticize the judge to get a one-liner in, to win a battle, to put out a tweet that puts a bunch of people down. And then it rolls on to society and down on the street. And we wonder why we have issues with violence, with gun violence, with gang violence, with all these other issues, because we're not, it's just simple. There's a lot of people not taking a breath before they think or before they speak or before they act. Absolutely. And I would argue as well, it's an extension of the mental health crisis. I mean, the, the road rage incident, you know, what, and we've all been there, I've been there, especially God, sleep deprived, middle of my career, going through a divorce, you know, someone cuts in front of me. I never acted physically towards someone, but I was, you know, holding up certain fingers and shouting at people. And some of them <laughs> didn't even realize they cut me out. They were oblivious and I'm the idiot, you know, but that's right. all part of the same conversation. You know, if you had community, if you had the physicality, you talk of one of the things that scares me about guns is you have people that own an entire safe full, but don't own their own fitness. So their only go-to, whether it's in uniform or whether it's a civilian, is to go for lethal force because they know that if, you know, if they encounter anyone who actually knows how to handle himself, they're going to get their ass kicked. So they're going to go to that lethal weapon. In the process of getting fit, they're going to find community. They're going to have self-confidence. They're going to realize they don't need to project that bad boy image because they actually are a bad boy now. You know, and some of the, we saw at the beginning, some of the most dangerous human beings I know are some of the most vulnerable and the, some of the nicest people in the world. And some of the biggest dicks that I've ever, you know, come in contact with are the polar opposite. You know, I've never would find out, but I mean, I had even an interaction on the plane getting off and they were English. They're supposed to be polite, but you know, you, you, you wait for people to, to get out the seat. The next group goes, well, they were just barging their way down. So I kind of stood up in front of them and like, what are you doing? We want to get off first. And this guy, you know, kind of gave me some yap yap from behind, but this is the problem. You think that, you know, Mike Tyson would have pushed his way down or, you know, no, they'd probably be, you know, super polite because they got nothing to prove. But this bully mentality also comes from mental health issues. So I think that, as you said, you you reduce the ability to get some of these lethal tools. It's not often you see a drive-by stabbing, for example. 
but then you also address the mental health conversation. And if you hit from both sides, then you would have a, a significant impact on the violence on our streets as well. Yeah, if we were able to be vulnerable and, and take off the mask and our own insecurities, because like you talked about, you hit on something. Some of the baddest people I know, whether they're SEALs or Delta, wherever it may be, they're generally the quietest. They're the most humble. They are the people who aren't going out looking for trouble. But I'm telling you, they're the people that could destroy other people in a second because they're so skilled at what they do. Um, but they're able because they're instilled in this discipline, this humility. They have confidence in themselves. They have enough confidence in themselves that someone can say something to them and they brush it off and don't have to say something back. Those are the people that I know that I would never mess with is the person that gets something said and they brush it off. That guy I'm not messing with. The person like your to your point that's yapping, man, you got a bunch of insecurities. I know you, you, you know nothing. And it's funny because when you talk about the guns, I'm a cop. I carry one gun. I carry it off duty. And I, I know people who carry several guns. They take little training, take little care of themselves. They're not doing any kind of fitness or nutrition routine. And to your point, they need all those guns to feel secure. Where if you had that vulnerability, that humility, if you were secure and confident in yourself and you had the discipline, you wouldn't necessarily need that. Um, but I also think as a society, and again, I'll go back to a lot of the political figures in the recent history, and it probably has been going on forever. It's just we didn't have Twitter back in 1800s. They probably said the same things and criticized people and there was duels and everything else. So I just don't think it's at this level because it's so instantaneous. But it's it's almost like a badge of honor to criticize someone and put them down. Um, and I find those that are doing it on social media, to your point, are probably some of the most insecure. And if you are an elected official or any kind of public official and you're ripping on other people, I look at your insecurity and because you're projecting something onto other people. Because if you had strength, you'd be using vulnerability, empathy, and you'd be using compassion. And you would have the confidence to be able to do that. We got to get to a society that is more empathetic, more compassionate, more humble, and has confidence in itself to be able to do that. That should be our core values as a country and as a society. And to your point, whether it's Portugal saying, hey, maybe what we're doing is wrong. Let's try something new. Whether it's you and I talking about mental health or addiction and saying, look, we've been there. We're, we're the cops. We're the firefighters. We're the superheroes. And we're telling you we're broken because we see the brokenness of the world and we want to tell the brokenness of the world to help fix it. If we had more people like that, we would have more answers, less violence, less addiction, less mental health. And as a society, we'd be more healthier, probably less chronic conditions, chronic diseases, but it's easier to judge and criticize. It's easier to put up a barrier than it is to be open and vulnerable and being empathetic. Um, and I got to tell you, probably one of my superpowers that I've learned in all this is empathy truly is a superpower that has the ability to influence other people and change the world. And if you can be empathetic, man, I'm telling you, you can move mountains with it. But first, you got to be vulnerable enough to do it. Absolutely. Well, I want to make sure we talk about the coalition before we kind yeah. of round out. So we've been chatting for almost two and a half hours now. <laughs> um, so talk to me about yeah, the how that was formed and then the services that you offer in your city. Yeah. So it was a realization from that family that we in policing could not deal with these chronic social issues. Like we've been talking about mental health, addiction, uh, poverty, homelessness. And really there was a lot of community resources, but they weren't necessarily brought together. 
So about a dozen of us in Hamilton County, Cincinnati area, started this, what we called at the time, the Hamilton County Heroin Coalition. Although the name was heroin, the underlying was always that we needed to help people with these chronic social issues. So we brought people in for prevention, public health, treatment, <clears throat> first responders, both police and fire, looking at it from an interdiction and not necessarily always interdiction on drugs. That is one part of it. But how do we inter interdict and divert people? Because often we're the first ones on the scene of something. Can we interdict and divert them to a resource? So having those kind of four pillars, we started with about a dozen people. And now we started forming in 2014, officially launched in March of 2015. Um, again, a dozen people. We now have over 400 people and 150 separate organizations that are part of this community coalition. And we've been able to stabilize our overdose deaths for the past five years. And by stabilization, we have not seen huge increases or decreases. Our numbers are still high. There are anywhere from 400 to 500 people in our county dying every year from uh, overdoses. It's more than car accidents and homicides combined. But we have not seen these huge increases. And I credit that to this community coming together. Firefighter, our, our fire department, Cincinnati Fire Department, literally, if you overdose, you want to go to the hospital, they'll take you there. You want to go to treatment, they'll drive you straight to treatment. They'll also really? start, yeah, they'll start medically assisted treatment right on the spot. They have a doctor. They can call up and prescribe medically assisted treatment, connect you to treatment later on. If you go to the hospital, the hospital is going to try to connect you to treatment. That's just straight from the street level. And we've been able to do that with the power of the coalition. Public health has needle exchanges where you go exchange needles, but also we're looking for hepatitis C, HIV, pregnancies, but we're also trying to connect that person to treatment. Um, we have a robust diversion program where it's a quick response team, a law enforcement diversion program. We've actually started a project on one side of the city of Cincinnati where we are rapid, we identified, it started off with 13 of the most highest risk overdoses, anyone from six overdoses to 30 overdoses, ages in the 20s to the 70s. To your point, some of those people in the 70s go, look, I'm not going to quit my drugs. I'm 70 years old. To your point, they're going to stay addicted. But there's other parts of that group who do want to get help. And we are working with that group to try to get them harm reduction supplies so that they don't die or they don't have something that impacts somebody else. But that we identified those 13 people and we wrap services around them. So we go and build this relationship and then build towards active recovery, making sure we guide them to the next level of care. What we did was we built a continuum care model and took it to that individual and wrapped it around them. So this we would not be able to do that without this coalition. And to your point, it is the power of community. It is the power of us looking as first responders and saying, we can't do this all. We don't have the tools to deal with these chronic mental uh, medical health conditions. And neither does just public health, neither does just the healthcare system. But when you bring a community together, we do have the resources and we're able to help people. So these 400 individuals and 150 separate organizations are working with each other, trying to figure out how to connect to the next level. Sometimes it's not always coordinated, they're doing it on their own, but it is a community system that's always working to help the person on the street and get them to the next level of care and get them towards active recovery and then support them in that. And our court system has completely changed. If you go to jail and you get a, you can get an assessment for drugs, start a medically assisted treatment, be put into a treatment pod, start that right away. You'll be assigned care after you get out of jail. Um, if you go to drug court, they got programs that will assist you not only to get through treatment, but then support you to get a job, transportation, 
housing, a stable life after that. If you're in prostitution, there's a court set up for that that'll help you. It's a year-long program, and they'll support you all the way through the year. I mean, we have really shifted not just the medical or public health response, but the criminal justice response to addiction. And the fruit of our labor is that you have, we've stabilized the addiction crisis. And you think about this, Ohio, like you pointed out from the very beginning and Sam talked about, was one of the hotspots in the country, one of the epicenters to start this. And Cincinnati was one of the areas to see this from the very beginning. So we saw death after death and increase after increase, and we build this coalition, and now we've stabilized. And it's be, that shows the power of coming together, of not judging, not criticizing. And really what helps us is, as a cop, I can help the treatment and advocate for them to get over some regulations they have. Healthcare has its own regulations. I can help them advocate. They can advocate for me on telling the public, hey, wait a minute, addiction is a chronic mental medical health condition and should be handled in this treatment facility or in this hospital system. And we've broken down barriers because of that. It is not just one police chief now. It's not just one firefighter now telling our story. Now it is an entire community coming together going, we hear the stories, we see the stories, we wanna do something about it, and we're gonna break down the barriers and we're gonna help people. And that's what we've been able to do. It is powerful. It is probably, I, I get choked up about it. So to save the world, it's this community came together and it'll be, a, I'll be part of this legacy forever of this group because it's not just addiction, it's helping with homelessness and poverty and social issues and mental health, um, mental health and addictive services boards part of it. Um, it'll be something that outlives me and it's something where we broke down the barriers and again, if we live to be 150, this group will be doing things that we couldn't even imagine. And maybe the drug addiction, mental health industry, um, how society views it will change by then. And it'll be because this core group came together, about a dozen people said, we need to do something differently. And the community supported us and said, yes, try something different. And it's fascinating. I'll get stopped at the grocery store or I'll be out somewhere and someone will go, hey, you're the guy that does the addiction stuff. I don't agree with what you always say, but I support you because you're trying something different. That's how our community supports us. And that's how we've been able to do programs that we would never have been able to do 10, 15 years ago, having Narcan in boxes in libraries, having them vending machines, handing out Narcan to people getting out of jail, helping people out of jail, get jobs. Um, that whole community's changed because it was open enough. They had an open enough mind, allowed us to be vulnerable enough to try something different and had empathy for other, for other people. And you saw it and you see it in this huge community group and it's making a difference. It's powerful. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's funny. It just reminds me of one of the other positive things that came out of the Portuguese model, which I think is, you know, probably starting to be adopted more in some of the, the cities that you're talking about as well. When you either completely decriminalize or at least you know, locally decriminalize the addiction, the addict that you pull over and you don't send them down the legal route, now that person doesn't gain a criminal record that's a barrier to entry for employment. So that again makes perfect sense to me. They haven't, you know, they haven't bashed someone over ahead and taken their purse. They've, you know, been caught with a user's amount. They, they get sent through these channels. They still have a clean record as far as, you know, any, um, you know, uh, criminal record. And therefore, when they start getting on their feet, they can start gaining employment. The moment we give them criminal records, we've just created a huge barrier to them getting on their feet in the first place. 
we dug the hole deeper for them. And now it's harder for them to get out because they go, I want to get help, but I can't get a loan because I have a felony. So now I'm living in a shitty neighborhood where there's gunshots and there's drug dealers that uh, out from my door, but I can't get a loan to get a better house because I have all these felonies. And it's not just us locally, but the state of Ohio, the Ohio attorney general and governor, governor DeWine has made a huge, um, he, he saw this from the very beginning when he was attorney general and went to governor. And actually he has a program where people can get their records expunged. We've recognized that the system to your point is keeping people in this addiction. And if we can get them their records expunged and we can help them get stabilized housing and transportation and get them jobs, they come back into society. No matter what your political view is, there's a role for you and your ideology in this coalition, in this addiction. Because if you are so liberal that you don't think that drugs should be criminalized, uh, you think that we should just be saving lives, we are. There's harm reduction. We're getting people help. We're not taking people to jail. We're using diversion. If you are a staunch conservative and you say, you know what, we need to hold people responsible. We need to punish them. I'll, I'll change your verbiage a little bit. How about if we hold them accountable for the recovery and we hold them accountable by supporting them? Would that accomplish the same thing? Because if we can get them into housing, get them transportation and a job and they're back to paying taxes, would that satisfy what you're wanting? And they go, you know what? That's all I want. I'm cool with people having a second chance. I just want to make sure they're working towards that. But if we say, look, it's a chronic condition, but if we as a group, as a community can help them with that chronic condition, catch them when they fall and then work towards that active recovery, would you support that? And they go, yes, I would. So now you have both political parties and ideologies on extremes going all in, all involved in this. They're all supportive of it because it really is this complex issue. We found a complex answer. Everyone had validity in their discussion and we stopped talking about just letting them die and we started finding solutions. And that's what this group has been able to do. No matter where you fit in ideologically, uh, if you want drugs legal, not legal, you want harm reduction, not harm reduction, you want people going back and paying taxes, this group is able to accomplish all of those because to be quite honest, it takes all of that to get somebody into recovery. Beautiful. And it goes again. I mean, I've had this on this podcast. I've had guests that are very far left-leaning, very right left-leaning. But when you talk about human issues, well, that's the place where everyone agrees pretty much, unless you're a complete sociopath. So you pull them into <laughs> the middle, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna have the same kind of resolution. Well, it's been an amazing conversation. I want to make sure that people know where to learn more about the coalition and also where to reach out to you or learn more about you as well. So where are the best places online for all of those? Yeah, if you want to learn about it, it's the Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition. Just Google Hamilton County Addiction Response Coalition. It'll take you to the Hamilton County's website. We have a page there that not only talks about the coalition, but has a list of resources that you could connect to. And it also talks about meetings. We, we have open public meetings um, every quarter, about four times a year. And we have 80 to 100 people that come to this meeting. And, and you're welcome to come to that. When it was on the web, it was open there, too. So Hamlin County Addiction Response Coalition, you can go straight there. As far as I go, you can go to my uh, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, or Twitter. If you Google Chief Tom Sinan, there's all kinds of links that you'll be able to get connected to. Um, I have my TEDx talk, my podcast, along with um, some of my ideology, my ideas that I believe about addiction, both from a personal side and, and from the professional side, are all linked onto there and kind of get a little bit of insight on why I think the way I think and why I speak the way I, I speak. 
Beautiful. Well, I just want to thank you so much. Um, firstly, as I said before we hit record, this is my first day back with a little bit of jet lag. So I know I st- struggled with some words today trying to spit them out. But uh, it's been an amazing conversation. You have a very unique perspective. This is the positive power of the internet. I, mean, I saw a video, I think it was Now This News, I think, yeah. shared your video. And you know, immediately I was like, okay, this is a kindred spirit. I need to get on the show. So I want to thank you so much, not only for your work and what you've done for your own community, but also for taking two and a half hours to come on the behind the shield podcast today Uh, it was an amazing experience i really enjoyed the conversation thank you for having this podcast and talking about these issues i admire your vulnerability i admire your empathy um and you're making a difference in the world by doing this and i appreciate that you were introspective and you're able to have people come on and talk about this i don't talk about my family much you got me to do that right off the bat so that's really good um but it was a fascinating conversation thank you for what you're doing and thank you for helping people 